I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm uh, Patrick Rapol, and with us, I'm very happy to announce we have Phil Nobile Jr. Um, you may know his work on Badass Digest whenever there's a, a new story that happens to, you know, tickle his fancy. Uh, he's also the director of the uh, Biography Channel's Halloween, the inside story. Mm-hmm. And we're happy to have him here. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thank yeah. you for having me. That by the way, uh, that is, that uh, the Halloween Inside Story is available on um, biogra- on the Biography Channel's website to, uh, for streaming. And if you're in the UK, you can buy it on DVD. And it's actually it's very good. Um, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. So it's yeah. all right. <laughs> it's it's it's, it, it's no burden of dreams, but it's uh, <laughs> no someday. Yeah. Someday Biography um, Channel will go that extra mile. And, uh, yeah, no, I was, I was psyched because this week I discovered that they, uh, they're streaming it on the site. And they also have Danny Farron's uh, Scream Inside Story on the site for Halloween. The whole thing, the whole show. So that's pretty cool to check out on Biography.com. I would check it out. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for this episode, we're going to be talking about horror master John Carpenter. That's right. Yeah. We're going to be excited. talking about Halloween and also uh, Escape from New York. Yeah. This will probably be um, the first director that we do in which we're more than likely going to have two parts to, since he has such um, interesting, you know, filmography and we we won't have time to cover everything we want to and uh, it would be great to discuss like The Thing or something else in the future at length. Mm-hmm. And uh, so John Carpenter will definitely be a two-part episode. So next year... Look forward to um, a second chapter, especially because our last guest Jay Cheel is a fan of Escape from L.A. and I'd I'd love to get <laughs> get to the bottom of that. Yeah, for sure. Get a nice, interesting conversation going with that with that particular movie too. So, um, if we don't cover every single title, uh, don't fret. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure it'll come up in just conversation because uh, Phil has had personal experience or personal interaction with Mr. Carpenter. So. Um, I'm sure he'll relay a lot of interesting stories about the man himself as well. Not nothing past second base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, also, I, I did want to announce um, I was recently at the Chicago's Music Box Massacre, which is a 24-hour film uh, horror film festival. Oh, how did that go? It went great, and yeah. uh, I got to interview Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, and I, uh, I interviewed a couple other people, and I got some uh, other audio, like the uh, the organist during the silent movie. So um, there's going to be a special episode coming up in a, you know Ooh. next couple of weeks that's all about all right. that. Patrick, did you say you watched Halloween with an audience at that? Screening? I did. Yeah, I, uh, that like? it was it was really good. And it's what's interesting is horror audiences. I always think it's funny how horror audiences are like the least likely to be scared. Like if you were like if comedy fans were the least likely to laugh at comedies, it'd be strange. But um, well, that's not true. But. Comedians don't laugh at each other's jokes. Well, no, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But no, but I, I was worried that it would it would sort of be, uh, you know, a, a lot of laughing, a lot of che- like you know, cheering for Michael Myers or. But it was like, 
people they really got into it. I mean, it's uh, I mean, of course, it's a, such a slow burn of a movie. It's it's not like there's a lot of wacky stuff in it, but uh, it was it was really great seeing it on the big screen. There's a couple things I want to talk about um, that I only noticed when I saw it on the big screen. Uh, okay. I mean, later when we talk about Halloween, but so yeah, that was really great. Um, that okay. yeah, that and I'm gonna jump gun. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, no, I just yeah, I, you had said you're gonna get into the the Halloween Halloween specifically in a, in a little bit, but I I do want to hear about hearing seeing it with an audience because I never, I've never gotten to. Oh no, you have, you've never seen it on the big screen. Mm. Oh, all right. Yeah. There's a company uh, called Exhumed Films in Philadelphia. They do a 24 hour thing every Halloween, and they. I, I was there once and, and Halloween started to unspool and the print was just fucked and oh, it was really? red and splicing. I was like, ah, I'm going to go get dinner. You know, I, I, I hate seeing a, a, a really mangled print. It just, it breaks my heart. So yeah. I, I mm-hmm. get up. They'll often, they'll often do Cronenberg movies at, uh, at the massacre. And those <sighs> movies are always, um, really damaged. Yeah. The brood was yeah. especially brutal. Yeah. Yeah. The, the brood it wasn't was, even framed right. No, the, yeah, the projectionist didn't frame it right either. That was, yeah. Ouch. But anyway, um, right now I think we'd like to talk about uh, like what movies we watched this week. I once watched a movie in a Burger King bathroom. I'm crazy. I like Martin Scorsese. I like my Bogart Humphrey. My favorite Hepburn is Audrey. My favorite movie is House Party. I got a house full of laser disc and DVDs. I just listen to director commentaries. Like the one from Used Cars with Kurt Russell, Bobby C, and Bobby J. What did we watch? Watch this week. Watch this week. Baby. What did we watch this week? What did we watch this week? Movies, baby. What did we watch this week? Tell me what we watched this week. You want to go first, Phil, or what did I watch this week? Mm-hmm. Last night I watched um, Island of Lost Souls, Criterion's Blu-ray. Oh, I'm looking forward to checking that out. It's great. You know what's great about it is there's a uh, in the special features there's a stills gallery, and you see all of these great Wally Westmore creature makeups that you barely get to see in the film. And it's uh, it's kind of a shame that they didn't sh- uh, showcase those a little bit more in the film. The film is all about Charles Lawton's swishy, prissy, Tim Curry type uh, character, and and you barely get to see these guys. And then there's a there's a shot of a, a Lugosi, Bella Lugosi makeup, and it, I don't know if it's like a goat kind of thing. He's got sort of a pan thing going on, and it's completely abandoned. And he's just fucking covered in fur in the movie, and he has like ten lines. And this is a year after Dracula, so you know. You know, Bella was quite the businessman. Uh, It's just kind of heartbreaking to see him just right in the ghetto, right out of Dracula. He just has no idea what to do with the attention that he was given. And uh, it's a short movie. It's an hour and ten minutes. And uh, they did a nice job of restoring it. It looks good. It's pre-code, so the the Panther Woman is really sexy. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, But you, you see... I, I just see stuff with, with Lugosi in there, and it, and it just kills me that he's just completely just showing up for a check like a year after Dracula, after the role it defined him. Uh, you can Google the pictures online. He just – it's just – he's unrecognizable. He's showing up for a check, and it's kind of sad. Uh, I haven't dug into the special features, but there's an interview with Richard Stanley, the guy who was fired off of the 1996 Island of Dr. Moreau film, hmm. which I'm looking forward to. And, that, and that's what uh, this film is. It's basically an Island of Dr. Moreau type film? It's yeah, they're all based on the same novel by H. G. Wells. Okay. Um, 
But, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how the copyright systems all work. This was part of the Universal Horror Collection at one point, even though the, the slate in front says Paramount. And it kind of predates Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Paramount mountain dissolves to a shot of a mountain. You know, th- this film has that before Raiders has it where it says Paramount and you got that mountain and it dissolves to uh, Moreau's Island. Um, and it's... And the same thing happened with Psycho. Psycho's got a Paramount logo in front of it too, but that's a universal film by all accounts. Huh. Um, so there's there's some sort of properties changing hands that I don't know about there. But uh, yeah, it's it was at the time and in the 90s and the 80s when I was buying shit on VHS, it was bundled in with the uh, the Universal Horror guys, and it just never got released on DVD. And so of course last spring I spent about an hour in my basement digging up my VHS, and I came upstairs and logged on the internet and saw the criterion was doing the, the blu-ray so that was nice yeah the first the first i had even heard of the film was um when i heard that criterion was going to be you know doing the blu-ray um yeah it sounds interesting it sounds really interesting um is the is the restoration good it's as good as you can expect it to be there's some shots that are just really really crisp and there's some shots that aren't so great it looks like it was maybe sort of restored from a couple of different prints. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's to be expected from a film that old and that sort of neglected, not looked after. Um, it's It looks fine. It it's You can't really complain about the quality of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a... Uh, oh, damn it. I, I, I can get up and check out who did the, the commentary. But, you know, one of those guys, Greg Mank or somebody, you know, did the commentary. And Mank's always a good guy to listen to. He's got a sense of humor about the stuff. And um, he did a lot of the universal commentaries. Okay. He's got, he's got the stories, but he's, not, he's also not dry. There's a guy named Rudy Belmer who does the commentary on, like, The Mummy. And if you have insomnia, put on The Mummy, <laughs> put on Rudy Belmer's commentary. You'll be asleep in ten minutes. I almost never listen to the film historian uh, commentaries because they always just seem a little dry. <laughs> they, are, they are dry, but Greg Mank is pretty lively, and I, and I like his stuff a lot. Um, let me, I'm just looking at the back of the box now because I don't want to – Credited to the wrong person. No, it's Greg Mank. So, surely to be a lively commentary. Yeah, uh, he's a good guy. He did a he did a book called Carlo from Lugosi, and uh, he's he knows how to. He's a storyteller. He doesn't just have the facts. He's a storyteller, and that's uh, invaluable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, Jim, yeah. have you seen anything recently? I did. Um, yeah, it's. I've been trying to uh, watch some horror movies. Obviously, with the with the season that it is and i i've been tr- i've been trying to watch movies that aren't you know your typical considered you know quote unquote horror movies something that you would categorize under that genre per se um and i had an inkling especially since i just got the blu-ray to watch Synecdoche, new york again and there are things in that movie that i think are absolutely terrifying yeah <laughs> um especially looking at the psychology of how the movie is put together. I, I, and, and that's also one of those movies where this is my third time watching it. And every time I watch it, I get something completely different out of it. I mean, I'm still invested in the story and I still think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not quite up there with Ebert, but it would, it would probably be in my favorite films of the decade list. Maybe not at the top, but the more and more I watch it, the more and more I, I'm like immersed into the movie and feel like, there's a lot going on that it requires a lot of viewings. Yeah. And there are the things about I it that put me off. First but. time I saw it, I felt like I was fighting against it, like trying to... 
Yeah, and it's sort of it's it's almost manic in how how much he's throwing at you and very like the editing is really quick and there's a lot of shit being thrown on the wall and I think the majority of it sticks and this time watching it I realize that it's it's primarily a movie overall if you want to think of it in terms of a theme it's about self-realization and kind of reaching that point of self-actualization which is you know this uh Jungian sort of concept of where a person becomes fully aware of themselves, their ego, and the world around them, including like becoming conscious of the female component to the personality as well. And there's a lot of these weird like references that I never realized before because, like I said, there's things being thrown so quickly in this movie that you have to take notes, pay attention. Um, cause there's like references to him menstruating. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like at one point, uh, Michelle Williams tells that to him, like, are you, you smell straight? Are you menstruating? And, and like just, yeah, there's weird things like that. And I mean, essentially towards the end, he decides to become Ellen, the, the character that is uh, house sitting for his ex-wife. Um, played by Catherine Keener. Right. And um, at one point he even says to Emily Watson, sometimes I think I would be better off as a woman, and there's that pink nose box, which for me is one of the biggest laugh-out-loud laugh moments of the movie where he's like trying to think of a ideal present to get his daughter. He's like, maybe it should just be something pink. And then he goes to this store, this toy store, and the cashier behind the counter just goes, this is pink. It's a giant box with a pink nose on the. I just it's just those surreal sort of absurd um, elements to this movie that make it funny. But like there, I I found myself more moved by the relationship he has with Samantha Morton in this movie. Um, but there there's things like when he has seizures or starts frantically cleaning the bathroom and stuff that's like it's really played out like something in Jacob's Ladder where it's really like the the, the score is you know kind of trying to evoke anxiety in the viewer and make you feel his search for identity but almost in like a frantic I don't know who the fuck I am kind of way yeah. and it's it really gets under your skin after a while but then it gets to a point where I, 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 I feel really moved by the movie and not just like you know, I'm along for the ride or I'm enjoying this, you know, mind fuck, I guess. But I feel like it's it's something that I definitely can't wait to have like a full blown review conversation about this movie on the show with other people. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on. The more you talk about it, the more I realize like how little I remember about that movie. Well, yeah. I, I could not, I don't think I could wrap my head around it or something. It was... Yeah, it's something I'm going to maybe either watch once a year or every couple of years because, yeah, there were things about it I didn't remember at all. Like, he even passes a note at one point to Michelle Williams, like something like, you think you might be gay? And then there's this whole thing with his daughter when she's dying on the deathbed talking about how he might be gay. And, like, there's just these weird things that I really didn't pick up on the first time that I'm wondering, you know other than the sort of Jungian influence that I think that um, played a big part in this movie. I just feel like Charlie Kaufman... <laughs> like, I know there are a couple of people who really actively could not connect with this movie because yeah. of how disjointed it is, how 
um, impenetrable Philip Seymour Hoffman is as a person in this movie. Like, you know, he doesn't make it very easy to be sympathetic in any way. And one of my friends is like, why does he get to fuck all these hot girls in the movie? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's really, I don't know. I think it's kind of a sublime movie. It's a mess that I find endlessly compelling, and I. I but like I said, there are. I, I mean, I've been watching things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and even the Final Destination movies, but I feel like the movies that sort of really um, infect, you know, themselves into me are the ones that play on a more psychological level that right. I can't really comprehend in every way. Well, that's that's why one of my favorite SCTV sketches is the Count Floyd, where he shows the Ingmar Bergman film. <laughs> it, always, yeah. it always cracks me up because the I always thought the scariest movies are the ones that are like just existential, like dread, and as opposed to yeah, and you can still find those in in things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre for sure. Um, but I think like you know the the kind of horror movies I gravitate towards, especially lately, are the ones that are you know I, I, about a character's struggle to find themselves or remain stable in some way and. Because um, that just you know that's just a sort of a you know a human need to really form some sort of identity and have it be meaningful in some way. But it's also just it's kind of scary. I mean, there's a like like I mentioned, Jacob's Ladder. That movie is very terrifying in how it sort of portrays um, what hap- what is happening to this character and is it reality and that sort of trope that's kind of been overused in a lot of horror movies. But um, you know that one came out twenty years Never. ago. I've never heard Synecdoche, New York, be referred to as a horror movie. Phil, have parts you seen, of it. I'd say parts of it. Have you seen Synecdoche, New York? I've not. It's fun hearing you guys try to pronounce the title over and over again, but uh, <laughs> uh, I've not gotten to it yet. But now I do want to see it. He said some interesting things, and, and I really got to sort of bump it up on the queue. I apologize that I haven't seen it yet, but oh, that's uh, okay. I didn't even realize that it could possibly be interpreted as a horror movie but it's on the list man well certain segments of it especially once his wife leaves him i feel like his his loneliness becomes horrific for him to and he can't mm-hmm. and he can't handle it or uh, you know process you know who he's supposed to be and so like once he finally gets a grant to put on this big play he feels like well this is what i need this is how i'm going to de- define myself but um like i said there's other things going on that you know uh, a film philosophy class would get a lot out of watching this movie, sort of deconstructing it. I think it's part of the fun of watching the movie. I mean, like I said, there's a great sense of humor to it that sort of appeals to me that you would find in, you know, like adaptation or being John Malkovich. But um, whereas I was kind of in awe of the structure and just the audacity of everything the first couple times I watched it, I actually found myself really connecting more to uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, at least by like the third time watching it so um i just really wanted to bring that movie up and if people have thoughts or theories on it send them our way because i I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by this movie yeah have you guys done a kaufman podcast yet no that'll probably happen when he releases his new movie which could be next year i think yeah 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 we're excited for that for sure um cool. what'd you watch patrick i i i guess i want to i watched uh, close encounters of the third kind oh, f- and yeah i is Steven Spielberg considered a like a quote unquote master of horror, like a no, no. I sh- like no. he jumped around too often. You know, Carpenter yeah. got him, found himself trapped. I think, but Spielberg hopped around early enough and often enough 
that uh, that it wasn't an issue for him, even though he came out of the gate with Jaws and Duel and, and could have gone that way. But And even like, you know, but then even just, oh, my God, the like sort of the earlier scenes and close counters of the third kind. I mean, later, you know, it, it turns into a lot more about just sort of wonder and this the sort of the, you know, the incredible possibilities of, you know, of extraterrestrials and stuff. But at the beginning, when, you know, you don't, you don't know, what's, know going what's going on. on and then all of a sudden all the kids toys are lighting up and he's talking yeah. It's, That's very poltergeist. It's you know it's terror. Yeah, polter, poltergeist. I think actually lifted a shot from it where uh, <laughs> where the toys start to turn on and stuff. Um, yeah. No, that movie's horror. And then of course that whole sequence with the lights coming in through all the. And I was thinking about and even in like something like Raiders of the Lost Ark or like you know there's at the very end there's a million ways Spielberg could have portrayed the the ark destroying the Nazis but he goes for the big gore you know he goes yeah. for the you know they don't turn to dust which probably be more biblical even but they they just melt you well, know there's stuff in Temple of Doom that fucking well, they, terrifies that's me. what I originally cuz uh, one of the, I was interviewing a lot of people at the Music Box Massacre and since I was, you know, going to be interviewing Herschel Gordon Lewis, I was asking a lot of people like what their earliest memory of seeing gore in a movie was. Um, and for me, it's it was Temple of Doom. I used to watch that all the time, and it was and um, like that has you know that has the the ta- the uh, dinner scene where they're all eating the bugs and that the you know scene the, with the bugs with the, the, the heart monkey being ripped out and the it sounds like fortune cookies. Yeah, exactly. And the like that movie's. I mean, it, it ends with the big, you know, minecart chase and everything, but that movie is like just horrific and yeah. Well, I think he was making it at the time he was going through a divorce. Oh, really? <laughs> so he he was in a dark place, if I if I recall correctly, for that movie. I don't know. It feels playful to me. It doesn't feel dark, hmm. you know. And you know, neither of you guys were born at the time, but that was the film that uh, was the big example for the big push for the PG thirteen. Yes, it was. Yeah, I think Jim, well, you were born at the time, right? I was. Yeah, I was. I was born in 78, and I, uh, yeah, that was, no, 1985 was a big year for me. That was, because that, that was Temple of Doom, right? 85 or 84? 84. Oh, okay, 84, yeah. It was 84, and Red, you know, Red Dawn is the first film I remember being PG-13 as a result, like later that year. Yeah, but somebody right. says there's another film that's technically the first film, which I guess I can Wikipedia while I'm sitting here. But, uh, you know, that Temple of Doom was the big one saying, hey, PG's not enough. That right. was the one that freaked everybody out because he's ripping out hearts and whatnot. Right. Yeah. But it, I always think it's funny. Like, um, I mean, especially, uh, I, I, I think uh, historically, you know, talking to John Carpenter, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing was sort of torpedoed by E.T. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. Hey, which, by the way, you were just talking about Spielberg as a, uh, a horror guy. Yeah. The original script for E.T., he was not a friendly alien. Really? Yeah, I gotta find the the issue of uh, it's a magazine. Back when we were kids, there was a magazine called Cine Fantastique, and it was a uh, a little more literate than than Starlog, and a little more literate than Fangoria. And they would get into genre films, and they did a whole analysis of the original draft of ET, where he was a malevolent alien, and Spielberg was going to do an, a bad alien as a as a sort of a counter to his Close Encounters, cuddly friendly alien film <laughs> of just four years earlier, right? So. Cinefantastique was, uh, was very uh, vocal in its editorializing, and and so they <laughs> came out against ET. They thought that Spielberg had copped out a little bit. They were also very anti Empire Strikes Back at the time. It was a whole big deal. But uh, it's a it's a great magazine. I've got piles of the back issues that I, I love. It's it's one of the more literate magazines of that period of that golden age, that eighty one eighty two golden age of uh, of sci fi and horror. 
and um, and they're very critical of a lot of the films that became very beloved. E.T. was one of them. The Thing was another one. I, I, I know the the comic book store near my house has a lot of star logs. I think it has some Cine Fantastique as well. That's um, the one that you want to read. Yeah. That's got mm-hmm. the articles that are worth reading. But even in E.T., there's the, like the the scene where the the um set is SETI people are coming in. Um yeah. and they're in those suit like that that mm-hmm. that before I even saw a Temple of Doom, I saw that and that really freaked me out as a kid. Yeah, it definitely did. It- I had a hard time watching that movie when I was younger because of how affected I was by those scenes and like you know you know seeing E.T. in the hospital almost dying and just just the way that whole that that yeah I mean parts of that are pretty horrific to watch too I mean Spielberg isn't all just sentimentality you know I, yeah, I, and he and he kept he kept the adults mostly faceless in E.T. which which adds to that whole sense of uh, of unease and dread and stuff and that's a big part of uh you know that filters. I didn't see Super Eight. I skipped a lot of the blockbusters this year. Sorry, but uh, yeah. Attack the Block also has very, a uh, very faceless adulthood in that film. It's hmm. it's all it's the kids in their world, and that's what I think uh, Spielberg is really just sort of shining at an ET. And, you know, you got the mom and you got Peter Coyote, but the, you can you'd be hard pressed to name three other grownups whose faces you saw in that film. I think I think even in the classroom scene, it's shot like just you just see the legs of his teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. pointing at their, right. it's pointing at the torsos of adults. The yeah, movie. yeah. That's I never even thought about that. Hmm. Yeah, Sorry. but I, I just thought it was interesting because I think Spielberg, I mean, has such a reputation as being sentimental, and I mean, he certainly is in a lot of ways. But he also has just this, you know, he has this sort of tendency, you know, and he just be really capable of making very scary, you know, moments, if not quote unquote horror films. I thought yeah, War of the had... Worlds was really terrifying. Yeah. War of the Worlds was really good, aside from the Tim Robbins stuff, <laughs> which I thought was kind of ridiculous. I think Spielberg had, a, had a, a fork in the road at some point where he could have gone, you know, darker, and you see it in Raiders, and you see it in a lot of his earlier stuff, and mm-hmm. he could have gone, and, and it just, he opted to go for that sentiment, uh, which, you know, is uh, sort of amplified by the fact where he, he becomes a producer and produces stuff like The Goonies and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he puts his, he starts branding himself, starts putting his name on things, even if he didn't make them himself. And uh, that sentiment is what hamstrings a lot of his "quote unquote" grown-up films from the from the late '80s, *Color Purple*, *Empire of the Sun*. Yeah, they they they're they're a little naive, uh, and and that's that that was a strength in stuff like *ET* and stuff like *Close Encounters*. But that naivete doesn't play so well in some of the stuff he tries to tackle at that point. I think he outgrew it certainly. In, in subsequent years, but that at the time, that was the problem with Spielberg trying to do serious shit. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it like Schindler's List? You think that was when he finally? I think that was a big one. I think that was a yeah. really big one because he, you know, Empire of the Sun didn't work. I actually kind of love that film, but I do too. Uh, yeah. But it didn't play at the time, and uh, he had uh, and and the Color Purple was his big stab at the Oscar stuff first. I might be forgetting something, but I think that was most his two big tries. But Schindler's List was definitely him turning the road hard in 93. And the fact that he did the same year he did a, a, a Spielberg, quote-unquote, blockbuster, you yeah. know, I think that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jurassic Park was another big one. That mm-hmm. was That's one of the mov- first movies I remember seeing a bunch of times in theaters. Um, so, yeah, I... Go no, ahead, no, it's just I, that that's a big, such a big movie for you guys your age. But I I remember being like I was twenty three at the time, and I had just seen the year before I'd seen Reservoir Dogs and Crying Game, and and I was like, 
Spielberg's doing this shit still. Who gives a <laughs> no, a lot of people I, felt that way. I didn't. I did. I wasn't on board with Jurassic Park at all. But then I was blown apart by Schindler's List. But I was 23. You know, it was a different uh, mindset. But at the time, like he had a lot to prove in 1993. I would say. I think is is the uh, what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. You, well, I think it's. I think it's interesting how you you need you need a, some time to separate because you, you you know you you judge movies based on the you know the sort of the era they come out and the climate they come out and where in the filmmaker's history they are. You know, is this. I, I you always find I always find myself saying like always, oh, but is this an improvement from you know a previous film? You know, sure. I, I saw I saw a young adult Jason Reitman's new movie, um, just this weekend, uh, past weekend, and and I was and it and it's good and it's and it's you know it's very interesting and it's very uncompromising in a lot of ways. But I was I remember just thinking like, but this doesn't feel like a progression, you know. <laughs> And yeah. I, I feel it, and it's not a. It's definitely not going to be a up in the air or a Juno where it's very mm-hmm. marketable. This I, I think it's going to fly under the radar and probably not even really get nominated for anything. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if later, you know, down the road, young adult is suddenly looked back on and sort of discovered because I think it's a really good movie. Do you prefer a filmmaker to sort of, you know, evolve or progress over time, or if they have a strength or you know if they have a certain style that they excel at? I mean, I'm not expecting, you know, Jason Reitman to really, you know, be, be a Scorsese yeah, in the future yeah. or anything like that. I think he makes, I'm, I, I've liked all of his movies, but yeah. they're just solid. They're not really anything much bigger than that. Right. I, I hate the idea of, of a filmmaker consciously thinking, I need to grow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, want, I want history to decide how that goes. You know what I mean? And I'll take a look myself, you know, after the guy's submitted a body of work. But if a guy's thinking, how can I, like, I want to cover all my bases. I want right. to make sure my legacy is secure. You know, fuck that guy. Yeah, the guy yeah. who, if he, you can sometimes tell when you're watching a movie and someone has something to prove. And it's, and yeah. it, it can be annoying. Uh, and well, I, I love a guy who just, you know, doesn't think about that stuff and just bounces all over the place and does does what he wants. I mean, you know, he's he's never made a great fucking movie, but uh, James Mangold is a guy who was like, I'm going to make every kind of movie I can make. If you look at his his filmography, he's got romantic comedies, he's got a fucking western, he's got a, a cop thriller, yeah. he's got a time travel story, he's got a, a musical biopic. He's He's really not comfortable in one spot. I wish his movies were better. I really like Copland <laughs> a lot, though. I, think, I, I like Copland is my favorite of his absolutely yeah I just, but he's just keeps moving he's a moving target yeah he, you don't know what he's gonna do next and if he said if you heard he was gonna do a horror movie tomorrow or a skydiving uh, movie tomorrow you'd believe either one that's yeah. true I mean I, his his take on a on a horror movie I guess more psychological thriller was identity and that was when I got really sick of that concept <laughs> in horror movies I mean it had been played out to death I, but point. I re- I really do love. Uh, directors who do that. I mean, in preparation yeah. for this episode, I watched. I went back and watched Howard Hawks, and it's what's so great about Howard Hawks is, uh, uh, you know, it, he, um, and on the other hand, I mean, I do love directors who have their very distinct feeling. But Howard Hawks isn't trying to make trying to bring the Western genre to him. He is going to that genre because he likes it. And I, sure, um, yeah. But and same, I was, you know, I was just about to say because. You know, with the whole Mangold example, even though he's done, he doesn't have a classic under his belt, I don't think, except for maybe Copland, he's got the kind of career that Carpenter wishes he had. Yeah. he He's a journeyman director. He's a director. He's a hired gun. He's going to make the best story he can in whatever genre he's hired to make that story in. And, and that's – those are the guys that Hawks uh, – that Carpenter, excuse me, uh, admired so much, guys that were able to adapt to any genre and make, make a film work. 
Yeah. I mean, Hawks, Hawks is unbelievable. He's all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. bringing up Baby, the thing from, <laughs> you know, Another World. And yeah. All favorites. Rio Bravo. They, they're they just very far different ends of the spectrum, and they're all great. Um, I do like I do like directors, you know, to improve. But at the same time, I like – I love uh, – I, I think this is sort of an interesting thing that there are some people who they will take an average of a filmmaker's filmography, and that's how they'll judge, like, a director. And I don't, I don't do that. I – I like directors, you know, by that standard, Stanley Kubrick is clearly the best filmmaker ever because he's made, you know, only, and then, uh, but I like people like, uh, I mean, you know, my favorite director is Woody Allen, and I'd say a good half of his movies are completely inessential, you know? Maybe maybe not that many, but a a lot of his movies, you know? They're fluff. Yeah, and, uh, and... And he's not a mo- he's not someone who definitely necessarily experiments. Uh, he occasionally does. He'll do. Uh, he likes to do sort of style like exercises in style. Where he'll imitate, you know, like Shadows and Fog, where he did a German sure. expressionist movie, sure. and uh, I think even like deconstructing Harry with a little bit French New Wave. And um, Soderbergh's kind of done that. Well, too. yeah. So yeah. So I mean, Soderbergh sort of loves to just go way. all over the place. That's. Yeah. Um, he's he he's got carte blanche. Sometimes you can tell when a guy's got carte blanche because he's sort of flaunting it. I think Soderbergh yeah. is just as just as side of flaunting. He's like, I get to do whatever I want, y'all, and that's <laughs> great. That's great. Some guys are quieter about it. I think Mangold's a quieter guy about it, you know, because yeah. I think he's modest because his films aren't as good. But you know, a guy like Hawks, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, something um, Nicholas Meyer, something Nicholas Meyer said, and almost nothing Nicholas Meyer says is originally said by him. So I don't know who originally said this, but Nicholas Meyer once said, in specificity, there's universality. So if you – a good director can take any super specific situation and make it you know, feel like something that anyone in the audience can relate to. And the way Hawks does that to me is through humor. We just talked about Rio Bravo and The Thing and bringing I – mean, bringing up babies obviously comedy, but even Hawks' non-comedies – what makes you, what connects you to those characters are those moments of levity, and he knows right yeah. when to like sort of let the air out of the balloon a little bit, and just give you that release, and then and then he's on to the to the plot proper, you know. But his his he he characterizes his 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 cast, his people in his films with humor. Yeah, right. and I just Carpenter watched, I watched did that the thing really a week well ago. Carpenter's great at it because yeah. Carpenter knows that that's what Hawks was doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Carpenter I mean, especially is like Tarantino. Carpenter's Carpenter is riffing on his filmmaker favorites, just like Tarantino is today. And people kind of get a little, you know, on one side of the fence or the other about Tarantino, but they don't realize that directors have been doing that for at least thirty years. Yeah, the moment that you absolutely need levity is during at the end of the uh, blood test sequence in the thing, where yeah. where the guy just yells about, "Will you just?" I don't want to be tied to this fucking couch anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that, and, I mean, then, that, and then there's that's that the... shot where it just hangs on him sitting there. Like, you know, it's beyond the funny moment. Carpenter knows to like, oh, I'm going to let him, I'm going to let him be embarrassed right now. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. spend five seconds letting this actor be embarrassed about that moment. And then he cuts away. And, and that's absolutely a Hawk's touch. You know, just, he's you know, not, not aesthetically or specifically, <laughs> right. but just in terms of, uh, you know, where he took his cues from, where he got his lessons, where he went to school. There's a lot of that in uh, I one of the films I watched was Red River, and Red River is just all about it's this uh, you know like Kane mutiny kind of movie where John Wayne's getting more and more crazy and people are getting more and more desperate and you know it's getting more intense, but all of that tension does yeah comes out through humor. There you know the the cook is a really funny character and uh, 
it's 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 really true. Um, yeah. It's been 20 years since I've seen Red River, so I can't chime in. But yeah, yeah I think uh, I, I like it even more than Rio Bravo. Um, yeah. That's a bold statement. I I mean, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I haven't watched it. In they're both years they're both great. I just <laughs> I I really really liked Red River a lot. Um, no, but I don't I don't think you should judge filmmakers like that. I mean, you want to go on the other side. Uh, Robert Altman brings everything to Robert Altman. You know, Robert Altman's mm-hmm. Western is yeah. uh, looks almost identical to Robert Altman's Popeye movie, you know, like, uh, and he's just, one of j- uh, Patrick, just to bring it back to Carpenter for a second. Yeah. Did you watch that interview that I sent you yeah. about, uh, yeah. Where yeah. He's or... hate, just hating on Altman. <laughs> yes, I did. He, he calls him masturbatory. Yeah. Masturbatory. He said, well, it looks like he's just beating around the swamp for, in Na- he called, <laughs> he called Nashville. <laughs> to, like, yeah. under- I mean, yeah, that's really that's that was that was a very funny moment. Well, Altman's to me. an acquired taste. I mean, I I feel like he's contributed a lot to filmmaking and 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 his influence is you know extraordinary. But um, yeah, I feel like there's a difference between acquired taste and if you you know it, it's like a duck hunter. If you sit in that fucking shrub long enough, you're gonna get something amazing. And I feel like I haven't seen one Altman film where that that hasn't happened. Like yeah. whatever, mm-hmm. I don't think like, oh, I'm I'm special and I'm part of the elite and I understand this. I know that Altman's about waiting for those moments and when they come, they're amazing and, and you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who didn't like buy into those moments that he gives you. But he makes you wait for him. Right. Uh, it, that's that's my takeaway from Altman lately. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, but I mean, Altman's a person. He's made you know as many masterpieces as many probably any. But he's also made a lot of mediocre movies. He's made you know some. But you can always tell it's an Altman movie. Exactly. Well, my yeah, and I mean, that's a person who I wouldn't necessarily say grew as a filmmaker. But I mean, he's his film career proper started at age forty. So I mean, I think that probably is reason why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you probably don't have as as sharp as an arc if you if you sort of bloom that late, I would think. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, but I, so I mean, it all depends on, and I think, I think maybe John Carpenter, uh, you know, gets a can get a bum rap sometimes, despite making you know obviously two of the greatest horror films ever made. You, you know, you you make a list of top five uh, or top ten horror movies of all time, and two of them are his. That's something. But uh, I think. Maybe some people are they they don't they just they take an av- total average. It doesn't matter whether it was something that was just a work for hire or if it was just something that they really put a lot of effort into or whatever. Mm-hmm. They just they all factor into their filmography the same. And I don't really like judging directors like that. Yeah, yeah. I think Carpenter. You know, like it, there's uh, how do you put it? I mean, if he had he not made another horror movie after Halloween. If you didn't make the fog, right? Let's right. just take the fog off the table for a second. And then let's say like the thing happened in 85 after Christine and Starman. I don't think John Carpenter would be looked at as like the horror guy. You know, he mm-hmm. like Spielberg made – you were just pointing out earlier. Spielberg made all of these sort of scary films. But he stuck in a 1941 in the middle there and he stuck in a cuddly E.T. in there. But if, if, Car- if Carpenter had gotten to make his non-horror films – like Escape from New York or like Big Trouble in Little China or like Starman, in between his horror films, he might have gotten a, a different break uh, historically. I don't think he would have been viewed as one of the masters of horror, which is such a ghetto fucking title anyway. Yeah. yeah. But 
you know, I, he's he's made a lot of other movies and he's tried to make a lot of other movies. And he came out of the gate with two non-horror movies that I think are kind of worth watching: Dark Star and uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Oh yeah, but uh, but Halloween just cemented the shit out of it, and then he made another horror movie after it, and that was, I think, problematic for him in the long run. Hmm. And then the thing, you know, there only one non-horror movie in between that, and then the thing. Uh, you know, and then he, his, and then Christine, his career was kind of cemented, even Did, though he did the super cuddly Starman after that. God, you cry during, you still cry during Starman when he brings <laughs> that deer back to life. Oh God, yeah. I mean, that, Carpenter can just j- sentimental like anybody. Oh, for sure. And it's and what's and he he's such and it's and it speaks so much about his talent because uh, there was a documentary you recommended to me, Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue. And it, mm-hmm. he he basically says that he didn't agree with a lot of the script of Starman. He's oh uh, well, I don't think he didn't agree with it at the time, but I think nine eleven. I correct me if I'm wrong. I saw this last year, but he says nine eleven turned him around, and he oh really now doesn't agree with the message of Starman. He okay, think I that we're basically good. He thinks we're ba- basically savage. You know, but I don't know when that interview was conducted. Hmm. <laughs> maybe ten years ago. Yeah, and, uh, and and maybe he's okay now, but. Yeah, he's he's a dark dude, and I think he's fairly libertarian, fairly isolationist, and you know this side of right wing, and uh, and that comes through in a lot a lot of his films, even his films that everybody loves. Yeah, well, and uh, I think this this is a good jumping off point to uh, talk about the first film we're going to be talking about, Halloween. Yeah, so uh, we'll get to the director then, yeah. Mr. John, John Carpenter. Carpenter suddenly appeared. Dark star, really weird. Halloween set the silver screen on fire. Then the fog cemented his image as a horror filmmaker. We made the thing. Did Christine the vampires blue? Assault on Precinct 13. Someone's watching me. Ghosts of Mars and Starman too. In the mouth of madness and they live. Village of the damned with goddamn poo. John Carpenter was born in 1948 in Carthage, New York. When he was five years old, he moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, where he developed a fondness for sci-fi and western films, eventually beginning to make his own 8mm films before he even entered high school. In 1968, Carpenter transferred from Western Kentucky University to University of Southern California's film department, where he made his first feature film, Dark Star. But it was four years later with Halloween that Carpenter first made a big splash. Michael? I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. Totally charted. Sure, sure. The only reason she babysits is to have a Halloween. 
Okay, Linda. Come on out. I don't know where to start with Halloween. <laughs> There's like so much about it that I, it's so great. Maybe we could talk about the first time we saw it. Okay. I'd, I'd be very curious. Just Well, I think me and Phil actually have uh, similar stories in which, Phil, didn't your uh, older brother tell it to you as sort of a, uh, as sort of like a bedtime story? as like sort of a scary. <laughs> That's exactly right. My brother was a teenager in the 70s, so he would come home from movies and he would tell he would tell us the plots of them as bedtime stories. So I would get the plot of uh, Halloween. I would get the plot of The Omen. And like, and he would scare the fuck out of us with, you know, just, just by recounting the plots to us. My older brother, Dean, he would tell us these, uh, you know, the plots of the drive-in movie that he just came from. And, you know, the what was it? I think it's either Black Christmas or He Knows You're Alone because they both use the same device. But I remember him telling me the... Uh, the phone, the phone calls are coming from inside the house story. Uh, huge, huge part of it. But Halloween, having Halloween be that story, it was a bedtime story to me first, was, is probably a big part of why it's still a special movie to me. Sure. You know, because by the time I finally got to see it, it was that bedtime story that my older brother told me made flesh. And like, you know, that's, that's wild when a story that you just know as a, as a, a verbal, you know, tale is, is given, you know, images and sounds, and, and it was it was impactful in that way. I saw it on television, and I think it was probably edited to hell, but or maybe not because Halloween's not that violent. But yeah, some, that was. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to say some language and PJ Souls' boobs, and that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> Patrick, how did you see it first? Well, um, I got a. Well, it's funny because I, I got a gift certificate to Suncoast Video, and I was and my mom took me to the mall, and I. I was looking at all the different videotapes and then one of them, you know, was Halloween and it was at that, I, I used to, when my mom would go shopping, our grocery store had a video, had like a little video rental place and I would always um, just wait in there and I would look at all the boxes uh, of the horror movies because those always had the best posters and the best, you know, stills on the back. So, but it, at this point, I don't think I'd ever really seen a horror movie that wasn't on TV. Um <laughs> Just because my parents were also very, you know very strict about what I watched, somehow my mom okayed me getting Halloween, uh, even though it's clearly you know said rated R on the back, and she said, "All right, but this is going to scare you, so wait until the weekend because you don't want to have nightmares and not get a good night's sleep for school." And I said, "Okay," and then <laughs> and but and then that night I snuck downstairs. All of her bedrooms were upstairs. I snuck downstairs and put it on and really quietly. Um, Similar to night. Yeah, and about halfway through it, I had to stop it, and I was afraid to move because mm-hmm. it was one of those things where I know if I look over the couch, there, he's going to be there waiting for me. Um, yeah. yeah, and she was absolutely right. Terrified me, and I did not sleep that night. I, lo- I love how pragmatic she was about the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. This is going to fuck you up, so let's wait till the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. And it was, it's not, it's, it, well, it, I don't think that's really even like her very much, but uh, I'm glad she let me do it. But the funny thing is, <laughs> then uh, later that year, we... I told my cousins, you know, I had, a, I had a bunch of little cousins, and I told them the movie as a story because I think we got in the we, – someone was telling ghost stories or whatever, and I didn't know any ghost stories, but I knew the plot of Halloween. And there you I, go. I told them, and they had nightmares too. <laughs> Way to go. Way to yeah. pass it on. It, it absolutely is a campfire tale. It is a story. It's a primitive story, and yeah. I, I mean primitive in the best sense. 
Yeah. Uh, it's it takes away. It tells you that uh, the law won't help you, science won't help you, technology won't help you. And this is not my. I mean, I'm I've, I'm stealing this from a, a guy named John Kenneth Muir, who who I interviewed for the thing. Like he he latched onto all the same shit I did because I think we're the same age. But it's it reduces like you know modern society to the, uh, prey and predator. And, yeah. You know you can't. You don't know why you're going to be consumed by this predator. You don't know why the predator wants to end your life, but it does, and it's coming, and you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's very primal, right? And that's that's my experience watching it way too young, similar to around <laughs> the time of, uh, um, I, I'd say I was eleven. I mean, I don't know. That's sort of the age where I felt like the transition was occurring of me being really into film. And wanting to get scared, like, you know, almost as a dare, I'm going to, you know, I, I feel like my parents have said, you cannot ever watch this movie or it's, you know, we don't want you any watching any horror movies for that matter. And they were sound sleepers. And <laughs> we had a great basement that, you know, had good insulation and everything. And they never really knew that I was downstairs watching HBO. And sure. um, I had watched Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, as I've mentioned, huh. uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and you, Halloween. You, you, yeah, you watched that when you were 11, and you didn't watch it again until, like, yes, like now, when you were 30. A couple years ago, yeah. 30. Yeah, so, and that's just, when, of course, I had the same reaction. I was terrified, and, I mean, it was definitely around the time I saw Nightmare on Elm Street and had nightmares as a result, and, like, something like that sort of tapped into the subconscious, and... Halloween just felt more real, like in how it portrays that feeling you're being followed or that feeling that someone is out to get you when you're alone at home in the dark. And, you know, I think he managed to tap into like this universal fear of like how death and it plagues us at every waking moment. And I I mean, I think that's not even like that's literally the text of the movie is that this that this boogeyman has a backstory and that you know, and the whole reason he has power as a boogeyman is because everyone in the town, you know, knows what happened at that house. And yeah, it reinforces it. And that's what that I think. I, I love so much about the movie is that he's both Michael Myers and the shape. You know, like mm-hmm. he's both. Uh, you know, there's that. Uh, I remember being blown away that you could see his face for some reason. I had it in my head. Maybe it was just because you know they'll never show any you know killers' faces on the horror movie boxes, but. I remember like being, thinking that they never show the killer's face, and and then at that quick moment at the end, you see him, and he's just sort of an ugly guy, and he he looks kind of vulnerable. It's like he's both human, but then at the same time, he has sort of the power to make doors close and lock, you know, <laughs> laundry room doors close and lock, and to and to disappear and reappear in people's vision, and yeah, it sort yeah. of it works on both levels, and I mean, and that's I mean, and that's both, you know the style of the film and the story of right. the what i kind of dig about it is is that you can watch it now and and there are people telling you from you know 3 minutes into the movie this is not he is not human he is not a man <laughs> he is, he pure is a evil. force of nature he is pure evil he is not you know like there's all these cues for the entire running time of the movie that he is something more or less than human but not human and and then at the end you're still like how did he? How did he get up after getting shot that many times? And then you have to think of it's you know not quite a sixth sense type of thing, but you know almost where you're like everybody's been telling us the whole goddamn movie that he is not human, that he's not a man, and 
and you think that the movie's not playing fair that he gets up at the end, maybe, but it really is if you go back and look at it. Oh, for sure. I mean, that, that's I like the the little story of Donald Pleasance could have played that reaction two different ways. Sure. And, and Carpenter went with the more subtle approach, but also the one that was obviously more terrifying, the fact that Donald Pleasant sort of knew he was going to get up. Because um, he'd been saying it for 90 minutes. Right. Absolutely. And, and, he's, and he, you know, he comes across as crazy in the movie, but he's ultimately right. Yeah, and it's uh, – I don't know. It's, I think that's what sets it apart from a lot of those other, uh, other slasher films that came after it is that it, it, it operates in a reality where that's the horror. The horror is – that these people who are realistic, who live in the real world, who are you know all babysitting tonight and giving each other shit about you know not talking to Ben Tramer or whatever, like mundane fucking people are suddenly confronted with something that makes no sense in their rational world, our rational world. It does not exist in our world. A guy who's impossibly patient, impatient, a guy that can catch up to you while he's walking, and you're running. Yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, it, it, Michael Myers does not make sense in our world, and that's the terror of Halloween. If right. you take Halloween on its own terms, I don't know if we're going to get into the uh, that whole Evan email or whatnot. But oh well, yeah, I well, wanted to get into that a little later. Um, okay, I, I, just, I feel like this movie is very it, the, the summation of the movie and like my favorite shot, and it's probably one of you know a, a lot of people's favorite moments is you know when he stabs the boyfriend and. He comes that, out of the closet. Yeah, he comes out of the closet, stabs the boyfriend, he's propped up, and the look on Michael Myers' face, his head tilting that way, looking like a dog in a way, sure. just the way he and and almost like admiring him like a painting in some way. Like that that moment is is really um something that I think sets this movie apart because I mean, I think Carpenter he, he he didn't really set out to make anything outside of this really effective horror film but he has these amazing stylistic touches like that moment that yep. I, th- I feel like tap into something deeper and whether if it was intended or not um, well, I mean, well what's... There... no go ahead uh, well there's just a patience to Carpenter uh, yeah. that you don't you know that starts to go away right around 1978 George Romero who's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time he does <laughs> Dawn of the Dead and you watch some of those films you know that Dawn of the Dead same year as Halloween and you watch some of his edits and they're they're two seconds long they're three seconds three second cuts and those um paved the way for a lot of what people call, you know, MTV style, quote unquote, editing uh, in the years to come. But Carpenter's shots, he's not hurrying. Right. He they is linger. Yeah. taking his time and he's going to take his time with that shot. And he's going to he's not going to rush you through. He's not going to he doesn't mess with you. You know, he messes with you when he cuts quickly. It's for a damn good reason. Like when when Michael Myers is standing in between the laundry and bef- almost before he registers in your eyes, you cut back to Jamie Lee's face, and then you cut back, and he's gone, and, you, and you're questioning whether or not you even saw what you saw. It's very specific when he cuts quickly, but he almost never cuts quickly. Yeah, and it's and I mean the whole film is just this slow burn of this. I mean, just uh, formally, it's just you, he just keeps getting closer and closer to the characters, and and it's terrifying because he because you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know what you're dealing with or when it's going to happen and when it does it's always you know a, a very surprising and it's never uh you know it's really not a big set piece or anything you know like yeah like the like the Friday the 13th movies or you know even uh you know some of the giallo Every- movies Every Friday Thirteenth kill is orgasmic. Halloween, yeah. it's not like that. Halloween, it's like as Jim was saying, you know that that 
they give you that slow moment where he just sits there and stands there and admires his handiwork kind of thing. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure that turned up in a Friday the 13th movie, but it was no doubt ripped off at that point by by Halloween. And at that point it was a joke where it would from be home. like it would be like Jason holding up a an arm he just ripped off and being like, "Oh, what did I just do?" and then he dropped <laughs> sure, it. Sure, sure. Um yeah, cool. and of, of course the music is fucking terrifying and that was probably what originally got me before the even film even starts you just see the pumpkin and you hear that and it, i mean it, uh, i read that it's that it was inspired by ex- the music of exorcist and suspiria oh yeah definitely i could see that that mm-hmm. definitely makes sense absolutely i um, uh, i always assumed it was jaws that would have inspired it because it works sort of the same way um but it's so much more kinetic than jaws yeah yeah and, yeah you know you know, out of the gate, it's a little more hyper, and 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 that makes sense for uh, Suspiria and you know tubular bells from Exorcist, of course. Uh, it's it's its own thing ultimately, and that's what gets stuck in your head. And, and um, sorry, I uh, I know we have an email to get to, but uh, and I've been champing at the bit about it, but I'm gonna I'll back off. Yeah. <laughs> no, oh, oh no, it's fine. I I definitely want to bring up the opening shot because I think that might have been. Well, we're, we're real, f- real quick about the music. Sure. What I like about it is it's not just very driving and, and like you yeah. said, kinetic. It also uh, it, it fits as his theme song because unlike sort of the cello of, of of the Jaws theme or you know, it's it's very it's you know, uh, John Carpenter was a you know a very early uh, adopter of electronic music and it has that electronic sound mm-hmm. and but it's almost subtly. Like it wasn't until I really listened to the soundtrack on its own that I realized that the big ba ba over the piano, like that's all very synthy and oh yeah, for sure. And I it's mean, got that metronome going and stuff. Yeah, and which again it, it goes more towards that he's not human. He's just this. He's just you know animated flesh. <laughs> you know, he's just yeah. And he he made all that music pretty much on his own and like you know in his own home, I believe and. Or at least in his own studio and everything, and just sort of, um, yeah. And I, it's funny because you know, hearing some of the more recent, uh, or hearing like I listen to a collection of John Carpenter's music, like just everything that he's done over the past, you know, however movies he's made. And I was thinking of the Drive soundtrack because there's a lot of that because <laughs> s- that heavy synth again sort of comes up, and I was like, oh yeah, I mean, come on, the, 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 like. John Carpenter originated that style, that sound at that. Well, at I, that I think point he was influenced by the electronic music of the era too. Well, yeah, for Very, sure. That's a, I just meant like in terms of complimenting a, that style in the in the movie, and I yeah, just, I, just, I, it really works so effectively, and it's memorable. I mean, it gets stuck in your head. <laughs> Drive feels more Tangerine Dream to me. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Uh, oh, for but, sure. Yeah. All all part of the same sort of trends in, in scoring at the time. You know, these guys without a whole lot of money needed to sort of create a score for themselves and they could yeah. do it in the room with one machine. Certainly that's an attractive uh, proposition. So you'll you'll see more of that as soon as the technology becomes available. So late seventies, early eighties, you know, Goblins score for Dawn of the Dead and, 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 and on, it starts to become you know, they're they're just playing with the tools of the time, I think. Mm. Uh you know Carpenter's thing is is mainly a piano score, but yeah, right. You know Patrick was right with the, with the uh, the synthesizer sort of you know backing it up. Uh, that's a big part of it. You know people talk about uh, real quick Marconi's theme to the thing oh. or Marconi's music for the theme, but and it's great, but it sounds like a fucking John Carpenter score. Why it why does. did he hire Marconi? Yeah. Why did he go across the Atlantic Ocean to get another John Carpenter score? He could have done that himself. Almost you feel like I say that as not a non musician. Maybe I'm wrong, but. 
it just seemed like, you know, it, if you're looking at it as a sort of a hypothetical clash of wills, holy shit, John Carpenter completely bent more Ennio Morricone to his will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I w- I, that's what I was thinking. When I watched the thing the other, or uh, no, I watched the thing first, but then I watched uh, Escape from New York, and I'm like, this the opening music of Escape from New York sounds exactly like the opening music of the thing. Yeah, I know. And I was I even yep. went I went back to make sure it wasn't Ennio Morricone and John Carpenter and it wasn't it was just nope. it says it, it, on, on Wikipedia which you can't always trust obviously yeah. it says he's uncredited for the music oh really yeah what film maybe they collaborated of the thing yeah for the thing that Carpenter's uncredited for mm-hmm. the thing mm-hmm. yeah that yeah. might sound like somebody dicking around with Wikipedia but I I do feel <laughs> like he just sort of like. Here's what I want, Morricone, because Morricone wasn't above turning in a, a shitty score. Uh, you know, oh, right. g- g- take a look at Man's Best Friend or something. You know, for uh, you know, uh, he does it. If you, I don't know if what your kids do these days with the torrenting and whatnot, but uh, if you find uh, a track called Robo Dog from Man's Best Friend, <laughs> and you try to reconcile in your head that that's the guy who made the theme from all of Sergio Leone's uh, Man Without a Name westerns. Your fucking head will explode. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. You know he wasn't above a dog soundtrack. No pun intended. But um, it was weird how he just sort of he mimicked Carpenter for the thing. Yeah, I thought that mm-hmm. was an interesting uh, phenomenon. Let's say. Um, now before we get to the before we get to the email, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. Now I saw Halloween on the big screen, and I don't. I I feel I don't want to. I don't want to try to make connections where there aren't any, but. There's this thing I've 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 seen a western on the big screen. I believe it I believe it was uh, Fistful of Dollars. Um, okay. And there's this thing about you know most movies they don't use the wide shots that westerns use. And there's this thing about when you see a western on the big screen. I mean the same thing happened with There Will Be Blood. Um, at a certain range uh, from the subject, uh, the um, what you see on screen will be like actual size, and it'll. Um, it will look like you're looking at an actual building, you know. Um, what the fuck are you talking? about? Okay, no. <laughs> All right, so you you do a. Are you the, are you talking about like you know in terms of your own perspective? Yeah, like the, the screen is okay. thirty feet tall. It should um it has a thirty foot building that fills up the whole screen. The actual scale of the film that you're looking at is one to one. Hmm. I got you, and it looks okay. like it. I got you. All right, and th- I mean that doesn't happen in a lot of movies just because they're nor- normally don't shoot that wide. Um, but the one shot when it keeps cutting back to the uh, uh, is it wait Doyle is the one that uh, that Jamie Lee Curtis is babysitting right Tommy Lee Doyle uh, Tommy Tommy Doyle not Tommy yeah. Lee Doyle yeah, Tommy yeah. Lee yeah <laughs> Tommy Doyle and then Lindsay what, what, who cares I don't know okay anyway <laughs> it keeps cutting back to her house uh, and it's shot from across the street and the same thing happens oh where, Wallace uh, there you go and it, and it looks. <laughs> Anyway, but it looks like the actual, uh, and it keeps returning that same shot. Um, you know, when uh, when the thing is when the shape is carrying uh, Nancy Loomis's uh, corpse. Yes, um, hmm. and uh, and uh, it keeps turning that, and it has that same thing where what you're looking at is to scale, um, and then it returns to that shot at that very final sort of chase scene where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is running away and. And it's the same thing where it's to scale. And I don't know. I, there's this weird thing that happens, at least with me, where it it just triggers something where it suddenly be, feels more real. I mean, the same thing happened. I saw Stop Making Sense in the theaters, and there's some shots where 
Uh, it literally looked like I was in, you know, in the concert be- just because of how close and the size of everything. So anyway, the the shape is, you know, coming towards uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as she's pounding on the door, asking, you know, getting trying to get Tommy to let her in, and it keeps cutting back and he keeps getting bigger and bigger. And at one point, it like stops. He's about he's about you know six feet tall, and then he gets bigger, and then he takes up the whole screen. And it was like it was this moment where suddenly it was like he was. He literally grew. I don't know how. I wish I could describe this better because I, I realize now I'm not describing it right. But I feel like I, I think I think like eight minutes ago, all your listeners went to go see what the new Tim Allen TV show was. Yeah, about. yeah. <laughs> I really apologize, but basically, no, no. I, I get what you're saying. He's playing with the frame with the movie theater in mind, and he's yeah. uh, and, and he's I, manipulating a movie theater audience. And you never really quite got that until you were sitting in the theater watching the thing. Absolutely, and well, he frames everything in scope, like the the, the widescreen. Right. Aspect. Yep. And I mean, and I, again, I don't want to. I felt like I don't want to make it so it's like, oh, he likes westerns, so let me connect everything he does to westerns. But um, that was one moment in the in the theater that hmm. I never caught before. That sure. Yeah, then that like terrified me all the more. And of course, that's the most that's the scariest part of the whole film. Yeah. Well, I I really wanted to briefly touch upon the opening shot because to oh, me yeah, yeah, yeah. that because that sticks out in my mind as being my first sort of realization of the camera as its own sort of entity, I guess, in a, in a way because of the point of view shot, but also of how seamless and graceful it is, you know, you know, at, it's, it's what they call the, the panaglide, I believe, the, uh, the panaglide cra- camera style Pan- filmmaking. They, Pan- they, panaglide was a, uh, it was Panavision's version of the Steadicam because, right. uh, the gentleman who, from Philadelphia, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, invented the Steadicam. I'm going to look it up because I feel like an asshole. But uh, um, he didn't patent it in time, and Panavision did their own version called the Panaglide. Ah, okay. So the guy who invented the Steadicam, you know, he's his stuff is in Blowout and in Rocky and that sort of thing. Ah, uh, yeah, um, yeah. But, and at, he, you know, what was available to John Carpenter and Dean Cundey was the Panaglide. Mm. And it was inspired by the opening of uh, Touch of Evil, which is another one of my favorite films. So I've... I've, I just have an affinity for those camera trickeries, or the, at least how did they pull that off, or just learning about you know how you that, know that was perceived and that was my favorite time. part of the Inside Halloween story. By the way, is mm. is the is the story about like they didn't have enough lights to light the whole house, so yeah. it was literally like just choreographed where all right they would light a room at a time, and yeah. then when that camera passed through the room, they'd be setting up the other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the original title was Deep Inside Halloween. By the way, Pat. Oh, really? Oh. No, not really. Um, <laughs> but uh, you called it Inside Halloween, which I... In- I Halloween Inside say. Story, kinda right, right. S- kind of sexy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they, what, beyond the, running the lights around, he, he burned one full day of his 21-day shooting schedule on that shot. Was it, on that was, the last, cool. was it on the last day he did the shot? He put it... I don't know if it was the last thing he did, but he <laughs> waited until the end, until he knew he had to film in the can. Right, and then he and then he burned that day on the uh, on getting that shot done, which is cool. And Jamie Lee Curtis, you now this is the kind of thing you cut for time. But Jamie Lee Curtis tells the story in my show that you, we all chipped in and painted the house, and, <laughs> and you know when I asked Carpenter, he's like, I don't remember Jamie Lee picking up a paintbrush. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So who who knows? Everybody's memory is fucked on those shows. You know, uh, they they were all twenty something year old kids, and they spent. Anywhere from five to twelve days on the project for three weeks, and then they were off of it. And you know, asking them to remember that time in their life is uh, dicey, right? 
So, you know, everybody's got a different version of stuff. But it was, uh, yeah, to hear them tell it, it was it was uh, all hands on deck. Let's just paint the rooms that we're going to see. And if you watch it in Blu-ray, like, like I'm doing on mute right now, actually, believe it or not, you can <laughs> see – you can see some of the rooms are like, oh, that's all fucked. That that room's kind of fucked up. Oh, really? You know, they didn't they didn't bother repainting that room. They didn't bother, you know, gluing down the wallpaper in that room. And hmm. and that shot is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's an impressive little bit of sleight of hand for a crew with no money. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm still impressed by something like that to this day when filmmakers can pull off something and have it be you know innovative at the time you know because I, I at least that was my exposure to you know horror films at, at, at a very impressionable age but also just realizing this is what a director can do like look at look at the sort of you know technique that's behind making something like this it's not just about you know the gore and you know the the just sort of the glamorizing of violence which this movie really doesn't have it all sort of plays psychologically and it works a lot better when it's in the mind, and he does that. I mean, it's a lot of the violence isn't, you know, graphic in this movie. There's there's a solid uh, 48 minutes in this movie, in the middle of this movie, where nothing happens. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the most terrifying thing. I well, mean, just looking out the impressive. window. I think it's impressive that he, that he strings along an audience for that long without anything really going down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, it's, it's uh, you know, what's, there's an old Who song the fuck join together maybe it's called uh, it's the singer not the song there's there's bit this story's been done a, a hundred times it's been done artlessly and classlessly and and with no style whatsoever but carpenter does every shot in the film with a high amount of style and i yeah. think it's the singer not the song i mean when when you hear when when i heard rob zombie was making halloween i reacted much the same way as i heard when david gordon green who's a filmmaker i really love uh, is going to do a remake of Suspiria. It's like it's like remaking a a, a sound. It's like remaking a color. You can't. It's not, <clears throat> the plot is irrelevant. The plot doesn't mean anything. You know, uh, Halloween. We talked about ET not showing adults earlier. Halloween is completely almost free of adults. Yeah. And Zombies version completely misses that point and says, "Oh well, I really like D. Wallace in in The Howling. I'm going to make her a mother in this thing." And so there's fucking adults left and right because he he got them all off the convention circuit. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, remaking the plot is beyond pointless. Uh, and uh, I, for Halloween or Suspiria, the, the plot is nothing. <laughs> the plot is paper thin. It's about the tone and the pace and the mood that's created. And and I know you agree with me. This uh, Jim actually likes it, but I think that's one of the key things that House of the Devil does not get. <laughs> like, because uh, that's a that's a movie that tries to do this. Yeah, it worked on me. I don't know. <laughs> I can't. I can't explain why. I, maybe yeah. it's the it's the satanic panic. You know. That sort of thing freaks me out, I guess. I mean, it's been do random, done. Do, do random freeze frames in a title sequence freak you out, man? Oh, sure. Why not? I got freaked <laughs> the fuck out when it just randomly froze framed on the same girl yeah. eight times. Eh. Girls eating pizza uh. wearing baseball shirts. That just freaks me out. I love that uh, fix song, I mean, too, man. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a fetishist at heart. I loved what Drive did with 80s action movies, and I loved yeah. Grindhouse, and I loved what... I love Death Proof more than Planetary. I'm I'm a fetishist. I liked uh, Far From Heaven. I like when guys try to make something look like something else. But House of the Devil just did not do it for me. I just felt like he had a whole other – he just wasn't understanding what it was about those films that made it work. 
I mean, there were moments, there were glimpses of something else going on, but it was fucking dreadful for me. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Well, that's no, okay. That's fine. Real, <laughs> I brought it up. Real quick, I do want to get to uh, Evan's email. Now, Evan is another, he writes for Badass Digest under the pen name Sam Strange, and he's probably one of my favorite people. We're going to try to have him on later next uh, year for a Tyler Perry episode. Oh, wow. Should he be- should be on now defending his uh, Halloween opinion. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, we don't have the the ability right now, but uh, basically he had three points that he uh, uh, that he, because yeah, anyway, Evan uh, sent us no, an email. No, no, let's, let's do it. Let's get into it. Right, because Evan sent us an email. He did not like Halloween. He thought it was, you know, pretty terrible almost. Uh, and I, I don't understand it, but he he gave uh, he said his his core problems about Halloween are about the three main characters. Um, number one, Doctor Loomis, and this is this is from Evan's email. I don't understand how I'm supposed to read this character. To me, he's a very goofy. He's very goofy, but I think the film takes him seriously. He fails as a hero because he spends the whole movie hiding in the bushes like an ineffectual buffoon. But then he fails as a buffoon because he manages to shoot Michael Myers and save Laurie. There's a Captain Ahab shade to him, but only on the surface. His obsession with Michael never comments on his own humanity or costs him anything personally. The in, the inference that he is the way he is because of his history with Michael grants the film too much credit. Besides, I can't imagine a guy getting so worked up over a mute, nearly catatonic patient that spends 15 years obsessing over the case. That's a long time to just watch a guy stare at a wall. I don't care how black his eyes are. Furthermore, he doesn't really have anything concrete to say about Michael that might be helpful. He just goes on and on pontificating like an asshole. The only <laughs> believable thing about Loomis is that he drives a BMW. I also have a difficult time Ouch. believing that an escaped mental patient with a violent history would be allowed to drive around a small town all day in a highly recognizable vehicle. He stole the car after attacking the driver. Isn't that enough to get an APB out? So that, that was what he had to say about Loomis. That's Loomis. That's cute. I, uh, I just feel like it's... That's, I don't uh, go ahead, you go first. I feel like it's missing the point. Like, you can nitpick story details. There's a lot of, I mean, I, I, one of my favorite story details is that, uh, is they, you know, that the movie actually brings up but never really adequately explains is how does Michael know how to drive a car? And the idea that someone gave him lessons seems kind of absurd, but. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like, it's, again, like you said, it's not the song, it's the singer. Like, okay. I, I don't think the reason people love Halloween is because of its, you know, flawless, you know, uh, story with, you know, and... These are things I'm not thinking about when I'm watching the movie. I mean, I guess you can be conscious of them and sort of contemplate them afterwards and go like, oh, yeah, you know, what that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense or that character isn't consistent or whatever. But as I'm watching it, I'm caught up in how the filmmaker is presenting the story. And if I'm you know, in, invested in what's going on and if I'm really caught up in everything, then I mean, if, it, if it's, if I'm focusing on, well, what's going to happen next and I'm thinking about it or I'm worried about it or it's, you know, it's a horror movie. I'm kind of, I'm kind of prone to, you know, overlooking flaws, I guess, when, when it comes to this kind of a movie, you know, I mean, I, think, I, I, saw, I mean, I think Loomis serves a very important purpose. Well, of course. Like, like Phil mentioned earlier about just sort of, you, you're constantly told that this is, you know, an ultimate force of evil. That this isn't a man. This is not human. And yeah, um, and it and it builds tension because so little happens in the movie. If you didn't have Lo- the Loomis character, it would literally just be about a peeping tom. That oh my god, why did he kill that person? Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a you know. <clears throat> I think as as you continue to read Evan's email, you'll see that uh, Evan's just not 
meaning the film on its own on its own terms to me. You know, he's he's looking at it like it's some kind of goddamn police procedural when it's closer to Grimm's fairy tales to me. It's sure. You know, like he's he's looking for logic holes in a film that is you know, as I said earlier, operating on a very primitive level. And I don't mean primitive as a criticism, I mean primitive as a as a basic primal level. Right. That that the 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 lizard brain juice in the middle of our brains can relate to like that that kind of fucking uh just basic level of predator and prey and yeah that's 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 i think what engaged viewers with this film i mean i i'm not pretending that that's what i still get out of the movie when i watch it because it's not you know i'm 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 watching this movie with all of the anecdotes in my head and all the stories and all the theories and everybody's criticisms but but back in 1978, what connected with this movie was that basic, this blank thing that you will never get your head around is coming to get you, and yeah. it will get you. And and the fact that there's two factions in the film that know that one's a fucking office rocker psychiatrist who you know uh, it's been said by other people, but you know evil is not in the DSM four. It's not in the you know you know you can't look that up as a psych. <laughs> psychiatric uh disorder but he's going off going his my my patients escaped and he's evil but uh that guy and the little kids the little little kids in the movie all know that something bad is is coming for them yeah and and the rest of the rest of the you know grown-up you know quote-unquote uh thinking beings in the film live in a world that's too rational for them to get their heads around this this unstoppable force of death that's coming at them and it's not a rob zombie movie and it's not halloween 2 you know uh evan later criticizes that we don't even find out till the second movie why he's coming after laurie as if that was something denied him in the first movie that's not the case at all uh there's apparently a fire in my neighborhood that's why (laughs) yeah i was gonna say is there evil outside your is there evil outside your window right now coming at you they they sign they send these sirens off when you know when the uh, mental hospital right leaves oh, the gate shit. open. I'm gonna I'm gonna shut this window and see what happens. No, I think I, th- I feel like the point of this movie is is to tap into that fear center and you know like you said get at a primal visceral level and I'm not really looking for you know the logic behind every uh, detail in the movie. I mean, if it, if, as long if there as it was, lo- I mean, I think that's actually why a lot of the, you know, slasher movies that followed, you know, don't nearly work as well. Cause they're oh they do operate on logic and they do have a story and it's, you know, terror train. It's someone getting revenge for a prank and, you know, Friday 13th is someone getting revenge for their, but there's no, none of yeah. that. There is, and that's why it is. It's not just. I just like being thrown in yeah, the moment. It's, yeah, it's not just that um, it doesn't hurt the movie. That's why it the movie works. Right. Um, Tell, telling us that it's his sister in Halloween 2 puts it in that same camp as the first Friday 13th or as Terror Train or as Prom Night where there's a motive. And, you don't need that. Which is from the, uh, the Italian Giallo film. But, but what, is, what is terrifying about Halloween is that it's happening for no fucking reason. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's That's happening exactly for no it. reason, and they will never understand why it is happening. And and Evan just couldn't. He he was not on board with that at all. I mean, yeah. his his other stuff was, um, you know, uh, very much logic based. He was looking for he was looking for it to make sense on a level that the film never attempted uh, attempted or attempts now to make sense on. Right, and I don't think it's necessary. 
it's a fairy tale to me. I mean, yeah. yeah. And again, going back to how we first experienced the film, Patrick, it was told to me as a story at bedtime. Right. Just like at the beginning of The Fog. <laughs> right. And then, you know, not so coincidentally, that scene in The Fog is probably the best scene in The Fog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, sorry. So back to Halloween. Yeah. Uh, you, want, you got more Evan stuff to read? Uh, yeah. He says that he doesn't. He, does, he He can't wrap his head around that Michael Myers is. He goes, okay, here we go. Number two, Michael Myers. I guess this is just me, but Michael Myers can be an embodiment of evil or a crazy person, but not both. The reason the first half of the film works so well is the way Michael blatantly stalks Laurie in broad daylight. That's not the kind of thing you often see in these films, and it's effective because it shows that he's just as real as anyone else. That's terrifying enough. Once, Mm -hmm. Once Michael Myers becomes kind of a super stalker shadow master, I find him less interesting. Once I realize he's basically unkillable, I can no longer care at all. I don't even know exactly what... Evan's line of thinking is in this. Well, let me back you up for one second because before he says Dr. Loomis, he said, My core problems about Halloween All right. are the three main characters. Yeah. And he says, Number one is Dr. Loomis. He says, Number two is Michael Myers. So he's saying Michael Myers is one of the three main characters of the film. I would, to that, I would have to respond in a very obvious way Is Jaws a character? In, is the shark a character in Jaws? Is no. the truck a character in Duel? Is the fucking fire a character in towering inferno yeah (laughs) michael myers is not a character in the film right michael myers is a backstory boogeyman part of a backstory boogeyman tale that's told to kids in the neighborhood the shape you know the the flesh and blood thing that's portrayed on the screen the shape is not a character in the film he is a force to be reckoned with he is he is the, the thing that's coming to get you. He's the thing that's in the way of you and dying or in the way of you and, and, and seeing tomorrow. And there are people in his path and there are people trying to stop him. But he himself is not a character. And I think that all the sequels and all the, oh, it's a sister and all that bullshit. And or Rob Zombie's remake. Exactly. Ugh. Those all prove to reduce the effectiveness of the thing. It's it, – much like Leatherface in four years earlier, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's what you don't know that makes it so terrifying. Yeah, totally. You knocked, you knocked on that door. You could have knocked on the other door down the street, but you knocked on that door. And, and you don't know why, but that's because you knocked on that door, that's the end of your life. And that's what's terrifying. Yeah, I, um, I I have a problem with people who – movies that are standalone films that later get sequels. I mean – the, the the sequel for Halloween came like what four years later, nineteen eighty two, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes, three years. Yep, eighty one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's like, it, um, when the when the movie ends and the shape isn't there, and then there's that great montage at the end that show that shows all the different other places that he could be. He could be anywhere. That is where he is. He could be anywhere. Yeah. Just because the beginning of Halloween two starts. Uh, starts with him in some old bickering couple's kitchen doesn't mean at the end of Halloween one that's where he is you know mm-hmm. um, I've always right. just I've just always thought of the shape as essentially the entity of death like I mean he's always out there lurking and we are constantly stalked by that possibility at any given moment yeah you know I never I, I mean I guess when I was younger maybe I sort of equated this because you're sort of reinforced through conversations about horror movies about like oh. Well, the 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 the, uh, the the girls that have sex are the ones that are killed, and the and the innocent, you which know, John Carpenter hated because right. he's a he's a very liberal man who 
Yeah, and to me that's kind of a ridiculous notion. And by notion. the way, Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie, you know the much-valued rules you know, that were in Scream. Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie smokes weed, you know? That's yes. right. Yeah. Um, she's I'm, not a voluntary good girl. She wants to date and she wants to do all that stuff, but she's just sort of a, you know, got some social anxiety I, issues or something. I, and that was actually most recent viewing. Like, I really like that character. I like how... Uh, I feel like it's a character that comes up a lot in horror movies, you know, ever since this one. And it's always they try to make the the, the person also cool. Like they're an <laughs> outcast and they're kind of – they're an outcast because no one else is cool enough to get them. Sure, yeah. And I really love how just uncool and kind of dorky and uh, Laurie Strode is. And that's, uh, that's the third character that uh, Evan complains about. And, I mean, the common complaint that – it of course happens, and this even happened in the screening, as good as the screening was. Uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis stabs him with the knitting needle and then leaves it there, you know, leaves his knife there. And then she stabs him with the knife in the closet and then leaves his knife there again. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's people, you know, people are like, why would you do that? And again, mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah, you know, you know if t- let's, let's read it. Let's read what Evan right. wrote. He said, if, if I put two centimeters worth of knitting needle in a guy's neck and no blood came out, I'd probably investigate the matter. What exactly did he expect Laurie to do in that regard? She stuck him in the neck and she ran upstairs. Unless I'm remembering it wrong. But what, like, what sort of investigating the matter is he expecting her to do? I, I Check his pulse, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that just seems unlikely. Yeah. And, and uh, again, that, when, that whole, with, when you're in not, the, Go ahead, sorry. No, no, I've got to formulate my thought. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, when you're in that uh, fight or flight mode, those kind of rational thoughts about, I better check and make sure he's really dead. I mean, you're you're out to protect yourself. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's sort that, like, I sort of... I mean, at least with that part is, I mean, when you're trying to, you know, run and find shelter, I mean, that, that totally makes sense to me, I guess. It's interesting, though, because I remember when I was listening to the commentary a while back when Jamie Lee Curtis always felt a little, like, I think she even had might have had an argument with Carpenter about that shot where she just sort of throws the knife because, like, I don't think she would do that. Like, they were sort of arguing about it or something. Sure. Or, or at least she thought that the the shot should have been filmed closer up you know, instead of a wide shot where you're seeing her actually throw the knife down or whatever. But um, I guess it was like she said something that was more about the expression on her face that maybe like sort of justified why she decided to do that at that moment. I, yeah. <laughs> like I she was the, being re- the, the be- problem is the character, you know, the, the audience has known that the character has been in a horror movie for an hour and a half and the character has known for like three minutes. You're right, like, right. Yeah, they sure. haven't processed this, and, and right. this is a common complaint in horror movies, and it always uh, bugs me because, uh, like, I have never been in a situation in which um, someone is trying to murder me, but I have been in a situation in which, like, I got into a fender bender with someone, and I know then I was freaking out and not, you know, yeah, like, yeah you, you go in a completely yeah. different state of mind when something. Two like things. That. Uh, what you were just saying, Patrick, about the uh, about her. Uh, being called out on how realistic her behavior is. She, uh, she said in the interview with me that one of the, one of the reasons she wanted to do H2O was that she was tired of people saying, why'd you drop the scissors? Why'd you drop the knife? Why'd you, you know, and yeah. she wanted to, she really just cathartically wanted to chop Michael Myers head off. That was a big part of her wanting to do H2O. <laughs> so that, I, you know, I'll give her that. But the, the, the thing, the bigger question about, oh, why did that character do this? Why did that character do that? It's an old story. I think I've tell, I tell it all the time, but I think someone asked John Ford, 
why don't the Indians just shoot the horses in Stagecoach? <laughs> and John Ford's answer was, because then the movie would be over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? That's a, you got, I, I like that story. You got to get on board with some shit in, in a movie, in any kind of movie. Um, and and, I, and I'm not saying you got to give everything a pass because it's old or anything like that, but you have to watch a movie – you have to accept the context in which that movie was made. Yeah. And if it still works perfectly, that's great. But if it doesn't, there are still pleasures to be derived from that movie. You just have to sort of accept the movie uh, within the context in which it was made, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you – it's a – there's – it's suspension of disbelief is you're watching a fiction film. So there's got to be some level of it. And Doesn't he complain that, like, the kid wants to do a jack-o'-lantern and then he doesn't do the jack-o'-lantern and Lori has to do it. Isn't that one of his complaints? <laughs> the stupid kid she's watching asks her to make a jack-o'-lantern with him. So she lugs this giant fucking pumpkin all over town only to carve it alone while that little shit watches TV. I, I almost feel like he was He's watching it. Wrong. I, I almost feel like he was watching it in preparation for one of his Sam Strange articles. <laughs> like, as I, a, you know, and and I I like Evan. I think he's a good dude. Yeah. Uh, so oh, I don't yeah. I don't mean to take a sh- I'm not trying to like take a swipe at him, but I feel like he's just doing it wrong. Like he's he's just watching this movie wrong. You know, uh, he's I I don't know. Like that's a weird fucking thing to fixate on for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's no way to go with that. I I agree. I don't I don't get over analytical with with thing with details like that. I just. You know, as long as it's working it's not, on me on a on a visceral level, or I'm I'm affected by what's taking place, or I'm like, well, what's what is this building up to? I mean, that's 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 the level the movie wants to work on. It wants to be an effective, you know, uh, horror movie, and it's, uh, if it's scaring you, exactly. I mean, he goes, he goes. Um, I don't know much about the guys in the thing either, but I never feel like I'm missing out because their personalities are so well defined. But Laurie Strode is just blank. No, number one, not true. She no. has a person. I can't buy that. But the you know a common criticism in 1982 of the thing was that the, you couldn't tell who was who and the personalities didn't uh, weren't well defined and I think that like they only become well defined when you watch it five or six times. Yeah, I think all through my 80s viewings of the thing, what bolstered repeat viewings was that I don't remember who the fucking thing was. You know what I mean? It wasn't I couldn't watch it every day or whatever. That's a really good point. <laughs> I think that the anonymity of those guys made the. Uh, Made gave the film a repeat viewing value in the eighties anyway. Right, uh, yeah. That that isn't there now because I can watch the thing every day. I know who, <laughs> I know who the thing is now. I can watch twenty minute videos online about who might have been the thing at any given time. Yeah, but uh, I yeah I don't get that Laurie Strode is a blank. And you know, back to Carpenter's uh, Tarantino ness, if you will. Um, he cast the daughter of the star of Psycho to be yeah. the star of Halloween. He did that on purpose. He wanted you to identify those people with each other and to sort of bring that baggage in. He he measured his baggage. He knew that there was he was bringing baggage into a film. It was smart. He's one of the first guys to do that. Yeah, I know. Abs- absolutely. Um, yeah, I just I don't and know. And it turns out that her shyness and introversion is kind of a strength for her because she's so hyper aware of you know the possibility that she's being stalked while all you know her friends are too distracted you know and i kind of like that concept <laughs> like i just like the fact that you know it, she's it, it's similar to yeah it's it, no go ahead no i was just i was just saying like you know she's watching she's looking out for him in the way in, in a similar way where you know he's watching her and 
just sort of that dynamic is you know interesting obviously because of the the fact that they're you know well we don't know while we're watching the first one that that they're related but well, it's they still, aren't related in the first one that's that's what i was saying earlier right right well sort of throwing that in there for you know just just that that connection is interesting and and how you know a lot of people were sort of harping on the fact, well, the, you know, the ones that are promiscuous are the ones that get killed. No, they're the, they're the ones who are just too busy and preoccupied and not really paying attention to their surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I like, yeah, and like the way that we're being told the whole time that, you know, about the evil of the shape and everything, the whole time Lori is being told that all of her shyness and all of her being quiet and everything, that's all, and that you're just crazy, you're just imagining things. Now you're seeing men behind bushes and then. <laughs> It turns out she's right. right. She, everything she feared, every the, everything, you know, that makes her so withdrawn and everything from the world, she ended up being right. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and she's the she's the first one in her group to to or the only one because everyone else is dead. But she's the only one in her group to eventually see what Loomis and the kids are seeing. Even that goddamn sheriff is getting dragged along for the whole movie, not quite believing crazy sheriff, Lo- uh, crazy Doctor Loomis. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but Lori's paying attention, but it takes it takes her a little longer than than even the kids or or Loomis to see what was what. Yeah, I I think that it's a it's a great movie, and I I I love Evan. I just think he got it. I think if you got to watch movies the way that they te- movies teach you how to watch them, and I'm actually going to talk about that yeah. a little bit with the next with our next film. Um, but well, uh, before we get there, though, I mean, I don't I don't want to take away from Evan's problems with the movies. I mean, he, you know, I think I think you and I both reacted in a similar way when it was on Twitter or whatever when he said, "I'm going to take a lot of shit for this, but I can't believe how bad Halloween is." Right. And then, you know, and and you were the one who said, "Hey, can you expound on that? Can you can you talk more about that?" So I, you know, on the one hand, I, I'm cocking an eyebrow because Evan gets to have a bold new opinion about Halloween, and I'm we're stuck in the position of defending the, the classic, you know, which we're not going to come up with anything fucking new or exciting to say about <laughs> Halloween. You know, so Evan gets to say the new shit about Halloween, which is is all the things that doesn't work. But it's, the problem is, it's not new. This is this is what all the initial reviews of Halloween said. Sure. So what happened between that week it got released and a month later when Ebert and Tim, whatever the fuck his name was from uh, from Village Voice, suddenly were saying, "Hey, this is there's something to this movie." I mean, there's a there's a craft on display with in. You know, it sounds so cliche, but I'm I'm staring at it now. I have it on mute, but every goddamn shot in Halloween is well put together. And it's there for a reason. There's nothing excessive. There's nothing gratuitous. There's nothing He shows you PJ Soul's nipples for like ten frames. <laughs> he talks her into doing a nude scene and then you don't see anything. The next time she she drops the sheet, there's some nipples for like half a second. Yeah. The next time you see her nipple, she's being strangled to death. You know, that's it. And that, by and the way, what's, I love how that is the first time you actually see a close-up of his, of the of the shape's uh, mask. Um, oh, when he answers the phone. Is yeah. when he's holding the phone. Like, that whole movie, you keep seeing him, but it's all in the distance, or it's behind him, or mm-hmm. you just see him from, like, the torso, you know, down when, he, when he's stalking uh, Tommy Doyle. And, like... Yeah. Then that first... Mo, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not paying attention to nipples at all. You're paying attention because <laughs> no, the no. sheet is coming down his face. Uh, you want to see it? You yeah. Want to look. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, if you if you had to boil down 
the 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 concept of of a, uh, the magic of a film being lightning in a bottle and accidental and 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 not the work of some master and maybe just uh, timing being right and everything being perfect and falling into place. It's that goddamn spray painted Captain Kirk mask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Who, who could have expected that that would have done what it did? And and it's I'm watching the scene now. There she goes. She's out of frame. And yeah, you're watching that. You want to see his face. You want to see that mask. And he's going to pick up the phone. And it's like it's your first good look at that mask. And it still tells you nothing. But who who could have predicted that 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 a, a William Shatner mask spray painted white was going to have that effect on anybody? And there were different choices for the mask too, was weren't there initially? Yeah, they had they had a sad clown mask, which was like you know sort of an ironic sort of uh, uh, you know yeah. creepy type thing. You know they they didn't give the, the shape treatment to some other mask, as far as I'm aware. Could have I mean, been, they, maybe it could have been Spock instead, right? Spray painted Spock white. I think sure. it still would have looked like Spock though. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the problem. Cutting yeah. out those eye holes and 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 giving that thing the the sort of half assed whitewash that they did. That was, that was kind of cool. I mean, especially when you look at the sequels, and because the original masks, uh, I was, I think actually number two had the original mask, but it was a different actor, so it fit differently on his face. It fit differently, and it was sitting under Deborah Hill's bed for three years while she <laughs> sat there on the phone taking meetings and chain smoking. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, the the mask itself had begun to t- deteriorate by eighty one. There's pictures of it, you know, from the nineties where it's just melting. Yeah, there's pictures of the original uh, Texas Chainsaw masks where they're just calcified latex, and it's just so sad to see. I, that was one of you the know, that's one of the most hilarious things about uh, Halloween Four is the first time you see the mask, it it uh, looks like one of those you know it looks like one of the fan films you know shot on camcorder that, <laughs> that it, it looks like the shape busted out of the ambulance with the Spencers. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and they got worse, and they all got worse. I mean, I kind of liked. I mean, they used three different masks for H2O. I liked one of them, kind of. Oh, yeah. I don't but, think I uh, noticed that. Yeah, there was there was a couple of different masks, and there was a CGI version because they didn't want to reshoot scenes with the original mask, and they so they tried to CGI to look like the one that they'd settled on. Oh, wow. The, the Nicotero mask. Uh, yeah. It's just a mess. I mean, like, it, it accidentally is amazing looking. Yeah. Tommy Lee Wallace <laughs> spray-painted a, a Shatner mask, and it accidentally came out amazing. And the whole movie's amazing. Absolute, like it's, it's right up there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's being like the perfect yeah, horror movie. I, I think. I agree. I don't want to drool over it. I th- I think I think that Halloween is a a piece of Hollywood product in a way that Texas Chainsaw isn't. Texas Chainsaw is mm-hmm. like the ultimate okay. folk art cinema, to me. Like it's made by guys who weren't part of the system, who didn't know exactly what they were doing, and made a masterpiece by kind of by mistake. Halloween is is a guy who studied films and wanted to be a Hollywood guy sure. and wanted to make a Hollywood film. So there's a different palette at play completely. And, and I don't want to also dismiss all of Evan's criticisms, but I feel like, you know, he said, what's he say here? He doesn't want to prove that it's uh, not a masterpiece. He just wants to prove that it's, Oh wait, no, no, he doesn't want to presu- pr- prove that it's bad. He just wants to prove that it's not a masterpiece. Um, because he doesn't think Halloween transcends its genre. And to me, what Evan doesn't quite recognize is that he's not watching Halloween free of its legacy. He's he's watching with all the baggage of all the other slashers yeah. that come with it. And, you know, I have friends who um, – I try to show them the French connection. I'm sorry. I'm going off on a sidebar. But you know, go ahead. It's like um, 
I show people the French Connection, and they're like, well, I don't get what the big deal is about the French Connection. But to really understand the French Connection, you got to show them a cop film made the year before the French Connection. Yeah, sure. It changed everything about how cops are portrayed in film and how cop movies are made. And no one gets that now. No one thinks – Oh, French connections are, you know, and people say French connections are okay, but Serpico is really good, but there'd be no fucking Serpico if there was no French connection. There's, it, I mean, it was like Dragnet before French connection. Right. It was <laughs> square nuts, ner- you know, you know, cops who were like, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, with the tie, you know, a government approved version of what law and order looked like. And the French connection threw all that upside down. And that owes a lot to the Italian cinema as well. But, uh, but you've got to show people what happened before before you can show them what happened after. And I don't know how much Evan knows about like what a mass killer movie was like before Halloween. I mean, there's there's Texas Chainsaw, which is its own thing completely. Sure. But there's before that, it's only the Italian stuff, and and that's where all the sequels found their way. There were whodunits. They ended up being whodunits. Yeah. Was Black, was Black else. Christmas Black Christmas sort of credited as one of the first originated uh, slasher movies? Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I think Bay of Blood, I think it was called Twitch of the De- Death Nerve in, in the States. Uh-huh. One or the yeah. other. That might be the first sort of slasher film, but that still had a whodunit element to it. Oh, yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that Black Christmas started with a whodunit element, but by the end of the film, you realize you're not going to get any satisfaction as to the identity of who that killer is. and. And sort of leaves you like, uh, you know, kind of frustrated, kind of, kind of wanting. Um, but a lot of, you know, Carpenter had to have seen Black Christmas. Yeah. But. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, even in that interview you sent me, he said, "Oh, I go see everything." You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was a he was a student of cinema. He goes and sees everything. I think that he was so candid in that interview. I don't know who got to see it, but I think that his candor probably wasn't limited to that interview. And I think his candor probably kind of limited his opportunities in Hollywood. I, that I would not be surprised. And I think, I think what you're saying about baggage is, you know, very, you know, interesting. And I think it, even this applies much more to the, our next film, uh, at least from, at least in my experience of watching it. Um, so uh, I think it's time we to move on to our next film, uh, Escape from New York. Cool. In New York, 1997, the entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. They think. I'm going in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. And if he comes back alone... His nightmare has just begun. Who are you? John Carpenter's Escape from New York. So after the commercial success of The Fog, John Carpenter routine with The King, Kurt Russell, for a post-apocalyptic genre flick. In the opening sequence, an anonymous narrator sets the tone of desperation and hopelessness with the line, Once you go in, you never come out. The narrator is referring to this maximum security prison built on Manhattan Island. 
It was built in 1981 as a reaction to the crime rate going up 400%. The once busy streets of New York are now nearly deserted, decayed, and run by criminals. The hell on earth is so unbearable that some attempt to break out of the prison on a raft in an almost escape from Alcatraz fashion. So the plot thickens as a group of terrorists wind up hijacking the president's escape pod as it crashes onto New York. Now, the president is now somewhere in this prison and holds an important tape containing a speech that might possibly prevent another world war. So it's up to one man to save the president and bring him home safe. And that man is the uh, immortal Snake Plissken. So, yeah, when I first saw this movie when I was younger, I I was not the biggest fan of it. Um, I, I think I just couldn't... Uh, connect with it in terms of like well i mean maybe my my only exposure to this type of a movie would have been rambo so i kind of wanted things to be a a little quicker pace or more over the top and you know the the one thing john carpenter is has excelled at throughout his career i feel you know with his best work is subtlety and simplicity and you know the plot here is is very simple it's just you know, this this criminal uh, is sent in to, uh, you know, safely bring back the president. And that's it. And it's a very simple story. And the way it's played out, I think, works a lot better on repeat viewings, especially for me. Like, the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it as, like, kind of a, you know, a, a, a mashing of, of styles, things that Carpenter obviously loves from you know either a western standpoint like bringing in you know just the stranger sort of coming into a um a a certain area in order to you know accomplish a certain mission and what can you say i mean this is one of kurt russell's best performances for sure and like everything about it over time for me has gotten gotten better you want to phil said earlier about uh john carpenter you know taking his time and not rushing anything this yeah. movie is almost 20 minutes in before the main character has his first scene. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it's, almost, it, it's almost like half an hour in uh, by the time he gets, actually gets to New York. Yeah. Um, and it's near – and by the time he actually figures out where the president is and starts the plan to get the president, it's almost an hour in. It's <laughs> – uh, it's a really it's, – it's more of a slow burn even I think than Halloween – um, yeah, yeah. It, it gives you its premise up front, and then it knows that, like, hey, you know the premise, we know the premise, we're gonna get there. Yeah, but uh, you know, hey, check out this great character we created first, right? And 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 it really is in no hurry to get anywhere at that point. You know, it's it's got its little set pieces, um, but it's gonna take its time delivering you its its antihero, and uh, it's. I think that's to the movie's credit. There, there was a deleted opening reel where you see the, the thing that Snake Plissken's arrested for. It's a bank robbery. And uh, hmm. it, ta- it humanizes Snake. It takes away a lot of his mystique because you see him sort of executing a sort of a low-rent pedestrian little robbery of, of what looks like credit cards or something. But uh, And his partner gets cornered by the police and he goes back to try to save his partner, whereas – when he shows up and he steps off that bus in the finished film, you don't know who he is. You don't know uh, what he's about. And you know, he doesn't give a fuck about anybody. Right. You know, where, whereas the, in the, this deleted reel, he's sort of, uh, 
humanized and given a, a, a mission statement sort of at the beginning, which is uh, yeah, was wisely decided was a mistake. Yeah, and so yeah. It was a, a backstory off. would be you, unnecessary. You, just, you described our, uh, John Carpenter earlier as a libertarian. I feel like that's almost the, what this movie is. He's caught between this sort of right wing fashion that is uh, faction uh, you know that's the government that's so you know frightened of crime and disobedience that they've just literally created a hell on earth to throw people into mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and then on the other hand you got all these freaks and it's it, it felt very like a very uh, you know early 80s you know movie it felt very punk rock to me just how flamboyant all these criminals are there's no other prison movie you know where the <laughs> Where the criminals yeah. are going to be quite so crazy and flamboyant and have you know the spiked hair and everything, and he's he's caught in the middle and he doesn't he doesn't feel like he's part of either. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he wrote initially wrote it in the mid seventies as a reaction to the Watergate scandal. Yeah. And then sort of rewrote it to fit the times um, later. It's funny because I, I was looking at the poster and I, I always got this movie when I was younger confused with Remo Williams, The Adventure <laughs> Begins with Fred Ward. Really? Yeah. I, it's, I, an honest, I, it's an honest mistake. I, I think the posters, like, I, I know they both involve the Statue of Liberty, but I just, <laughs> when I was younger, I was like, which movie is which again? I can't remember. And I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, just, used, I, I remember used... this movie being a lot more funnier, but I... I, it plays it very serious. That that's see that's the thing, and that's why I think expectation can be a bitch. The first time yeah. I saw it, all I knew is the main character's name is Snake, and he has an eye patch, and the president <laughs> has been kidnapped by punks who live in a future prison that is New York, and it's like, all right, so this is going to be real campy. It's going to be like it's going to be full of action, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be kind of silly, and but, and then you get there, and then there's that. I think my favorite part of, uh, and I think, I think John Carpenter. I mean, he did sort of get shoehorned or pigeonholed it rather into uh, the horror genre. But I think that happens to be where his strengths are because, like, the the mood uh, he establishes in those shots, those great long shots where, you know, Snake is walking down the the streets and there's just burning garbage yeah. and he's just looking at this crashed, you know, this fucking plane wreck in the middle of a street and he's just. He doesn't he gets know where to. In, he gets trapped in buildings and like almost gets surrounded by you know uh, prisoners. Like all of that early stuff is so great. And but I but I, I believe the yeah the first time I saw it I was like waiting like all right so where's the crazy stuff why is the crazy stuff not happening? Um, yeah, and we actually we had a little discussion about this on Facebook earlier, Phil. But the, I, what I was saying was like I expected it to be a movie that and I I hadn't seen Fire, Streets of Fire at the time, but. When mm-hmm. I saw Streets of Fire, like that's what I imagined this movie would be before I saw it. Hmm. Huh. So, because I just imagined it would be that really, mom- it would be lots of momentum and it would be crazy and it would be a mashup of all these different, you know, eras and be kind of silly. And it's not that. It's, I mean, it is, uh, it does have a lot of different genre influences and it creates its own thing. But yeah, as I, as I was saying to you on Facebook, I think that the, the, the sad part about Escape from New York is that within a year it had been trumped by Road Warrior and Blade Runner. You know, uh, they'd both given you like a, a future dystopia that just blew Escape from New York's really modestly budgeted future yeah. dystopia out of the water. Um, but but the Streets of Fire comparison was interesting to me because Escape takes such pains to establish a time and a place and. Here's what's happening. Here's what happened this year. Here's like before the movie started. 
I'm four minutes into the, the Blu-ray right now, yeah. and Jamie Lee Curtis is still talking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you said she, an, an anonymous narrator, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis. But uh, <laughs> so she's, you know, and and they go with their little graphics, specter graphics of, of of how it all set up. But Streets of Fire is a fable. Right. I think does it sure. call doesn't it call itself a rock and roll yeah, fable? That is that is this, I'm not sure if it was well, a subtitle a or a tagline, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And Escape, you know, has a, a comparatively fanish sort of setup of a future world where this went wrong and then this went wrong, this went wrong. But then what it does, which is kind of interesting or maybe a coincidence, I don't know. Uh, Fistful of Dollars, when it aired on television, they hired Monty Hellman, who Patrick will tell you is one of my favorite directors. Oh, yeah. uh, they hired Monty Hellman to film a prologue for Fistful of Dollars because – they it was decided that it was too amoral to run on primetime television. <laughs> wow, so wow. we're gonna give we're gonna give Clint Eastwood a uh, a motive. And it's basically Harry Dean Stanton in the Lee Van Cleef role and the man with no name in this Snake Plissken role. This is nineteen seventy seven, so four years before Escape from New York. Yeah. This happened on television where uh the man with no name is taken out of a prison cell and sat down before Harry Dean Stanton. He said, we need you to go do this in this town and, you know, here's your mission. And if you do it, we'll give you a full pardon. Which is the fucking premise of Escape from New York right. four years earlier, right? Uh, so uh, it's, kind, it's kind of funny because for the first time, maybe, maybe for the first time, you're not just getting a director riffing on another director or another time of cinema – like he's doing it two or three generations removed, which has become Tarantino's bread and butter. But, you know, mm-hmm. John Carpenter is now riffing on a spaghetti Western version of the Western. And then beyond that, a TV movie sort of supplemental piece of an Italian Western, which is riffing on an American Western. You know, he, it's it's becomes a, like way, way, way meta and crazy. Um before anybody was doing anything like that. Right. I think I Carpenter I never, and Walter Hill that. were yeah. neck and neck for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I uh I always get the Warriors came out before this though. Yeah. Warriors came out, yes, were before this. Yeah. But I, I think that that Walter Hill and Carpenter were playing in the same sort of sandbox. Yeah. But Walter Hill was able to break out of it uh more successfully somehow. Maybe he was just you know, a straight-ahead genre filmmaker that did what he did very well, whereas, like, maybe Carpenter, you know... I, because of his I early... describe Carpenter, I feel, though. Well, I mean, I feel like his earlier influences, you know, I, I, I feel like he wanted to just sort of... I mean, obviously, you know, what, you know, Walter Hill definitely had a lot of Western influences on his work as well. Yeah. So... I mean, I guess there definitely... There's some correlation between the two of them. Maybe and how Walter they... Hill just didn't badmouth... Uh, all these contemporaries <laughs> on television. It's possible. Yeah. You yeah. Know, uh, uh, Walter Hill also didn't ask for his name above the title out of the gate. True. That's true. And I, th- I think that two movies in a row that were horror that said John Carpenter's blank, you know, that probably didn't help him yeah. get out of that ghetto. You know, he, he, he was emulating sort of blankly or, you know, sort of shallowly emulating his heroes. Howard Hawks is Rio Bravo. Howard Hawks is bringing up baby. But he didn't quite see how audiences in the seventies were going to sort of pigeonhole him as a result. Right. John Carpenter's right. Halloween. You've never heard. I mean, those three words tend to run together. You mm-hmm. know, in terms of you're talking about film, unless you know, unless you're in the candy business. But right. John John Carpenter's Halloween. 
over and over again. And so all the escape from New York's in big trouble in Little China couldn't help that. It's a little surreal to watch this movie now, too, in, in light of where he lands. Um, and uh, well, I, yeah, also, was, also was, the opening with just where the, how the oh, plane yeah. the plane crashes. Yeah, into New York. I was think I was thinking because like, I was I remembered I thought Len Wiseman at one point was going to do a remake, and then I was watching it. So I'm like, how the fuck would they remake this movie? Yeah, where especially the opening, where yeah. I, I had the I got the DVD a couple of years ago. It was it only came out a couple of years ago, and I'm listening to the commentary, and that fucking plane's going right at the towers, and I, and they're not saying anything. They're not. I said, oh, so I guess this is an old commentary track, <laughs> you know, because Carpenter yeah. and and Ken Russell are just having a great old time during the commentary track, and there's there's no awkward silence or even even acknowledgement of that plane flying right into the twin towers. Yeah. So, and then I looked it up, and it turned out that the commentary is from an old laser disc, but ah. Uh. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it is it's weird. weird to watch it. Mm-hmm, for sure. But the one thing I, de- I I I appreciate more and more, you know, it's a it's sort of a familiar trope in these types of movies where you know the the um, the lone hero eventually is no longer you know alone in 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 his in his uh, mission where he just recruits these people who just happen he stumbles. Well, they upon. sort of re- what's great is they recruit themselves and right. He yeah. doesn't want any part of it, but then by the end, he's you know reluctant when Adrienne Barbeau's chosen to sacrifice herself. You know, yeah, yeah. No, I just I just like that. You know, eventually they sort of band together and you know tr- try and help each other out, and it <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, Isaac Hayes in this movie as as the leader. He's he doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie per se. I mean, he has he has some standout moments for sure. Um, you know, <laughs> I I kind of was into his sidekick a little bit more he was a little bit more wacky and sort of seemed like he would belong in the warriors or repo man or something but um you know he's he's kind of a one-note villain i mean he's definitely a commanding presence and he's you know obviously he's isaac hayes and you know you don't want to fuck with him (laughs) but um like in terms of a villain i don't know well i mean he's not an act i feel in that in this case it's almost like less is more sure you don't you just hear everyone talk about the duke but you don't yeah but if you but if you find out, oh, he went to prison for selling drugs, and then there, he happened to stumble upon something that made people follow him or whatever, like that wouldn't necessarily make him such a right. threat. Again, he could just be like another shape. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I can't pretend that the Isaac Hayes, Duke of New York villain, has aged well. No. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I think he's, he's a great physical presence, though. That's yeah. Always, he's of his time, you know. Yeah. He works. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think South Park kind of fucked up Isaac Hayes. <laughs> really? Is <laughs> that something? It, did Kurt Russell do that in the other? Because he did. He had Isaac Hayes, uh, and then he had like Matt, I don't. I don't really know the story behind Roddy P- Rowdy Roddy Piper's casting in They Live, but mm-hmm. did did he often cast like just big cultural? I don't. I, I mean, I don't think so. I, he seemed to be going for the best best man for the job i mean yeah. he had a great working relationship with kurt russell i don't think you can say that what they did together in elvis was uh bad right I, you know I, like you said i think it was limited because it was too soon after elvis had died um mm-hmm. escape from new york certainly they created an iconic character uh the thing everybody like maybe even more now than than uh pliskin is mccready is a beloved character yeah, yeah and yeah. uh uh jack burton is right up there as well with a certain certain class of movie fan and so i i don't think that he 
is 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 writing down to anybody. I I think they live is probably not his preferred vision exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, he did the best he could, and uh, and once he realized he had a wrestler on his hands, you know, that I think that probably gave birth to the the more iconic moments of that film. The yeah, well, yeah, a lot of a lot of Rowdy Roddy Piper's dialogue came from things he had written t- for wrestling promos. <laughs> um, but uh, I, no, I was the, just wondering because if, if it was Isaac, I was because I felt like if Isaac Hayes is, was a stunt casting of the era, and I was wondering if, if there were any other examples of that I was forgetting, but I guess not. Um, I definitely like the casting of Ernest Borgnine in this movie. He's yeah, he's, well, he's I mean, Ernest Borgnine and. And Lee Van Cleef, you mm-hmm. know, in it, it's you know signaling to the viewer it's a western, and yeah, uh, I like Ernest Borgnine a lot. He's very funny in this. Yeah, I, li- I I like that he's got a smile on his face as he's like you know uh, bombing <laughs> with his little bombs, bombing all those gangs, firebombing uh, them all. <laughs> I think it's a great drive-in cast. Uh, it's yeah. Harry Dean Stanton, and it's uh, uh, yeah, he's awesome. It's uh, Tom Atkins, and it's Lee Van Cleef, and it's Adrian Barbeau, and her. You know, lovely assets and and, uh, and Harry Dean Stanton. You know, there's which you know. You know, I'll jump ahead for a second. But Escape from L.A. When when we heard that was happening, people that grew up. I mean, I saw Escape from New York at the drive-in when I was 11. And I fucking loved it. But when I heard that there was going to be a sequel to Escape from New York, and I heard that cast for Escape from L.A. on paper, I was so psyched. I couldn't even tell you. Bruce Campbell, Steve Buscemi, Peter Fonda, Stacy Keach. I mean, that was a a great sounding Pam cast. Greer. Pam yeah. Greer. I mean, it was a great sounding cast. Like if that, if Tarantino was directing a movie with those people, you would be fucking your head would be exploding. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was just up. It was just punted. It was such a shame. Wow, Escape from L.A. Is <laughs> That's all oh. I might be interested to talk about because all the things that that movie does wrong, I mean, in especially since it mirrors the first one so carefully, it's it very does. easy to compare the Almost two. Almost note by note in a way. It's I mean, too just... self-aware. They, they, yeah. they, they know they're making a cheesy sci-fi movie. I don't think the people – and we're talking about the same people. Yeah. I don't think Deborah Hill and John Carpenter and Kurt Russell – knew they were making a goofy sci-fi movie with Escape from New York. Yeah, I mean, there's satire right. in it, but it's pretty dry. It's not, you Rick, know... It's dry, it has no money, and and it's played straight. There's a little too much winking going on in Escape from L.A. for my liking. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the surfing scene and them giving each other a high five. <laughs> surfing, yeah. That high was... Five and... Yeah, I don't... I don't know. I that That movie is just like a mess and the wall to wall like gravity kills kind of music that he has i mean that was another problem i had with ghosts of mars is like his his uh music selections and and uh, the score just wasn't as memorable with with some of his later work but i i like i i just feel like almost everything in in escape from la you know it's it's borderline self-parody and um i mean I know there are people. Out, there are a lot of defenders of, of Escape from LA. It's a like, lot. I think there's like, there's no, no, there are. There's there, like three of them. Yeah. I, okay, maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> but still, they 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 just, they just find the movie to be you know fun, and I find it to be pretty lifeless and. Um, yeah. Well, that's what. It's that's, not even fun. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, that's what kind of blew me away about it is like you, you know it's a bad script, but even like the motorcycle chase is like really lifeless and boring yeah. and. Like ever, like even on a on a micro level, 
all the choices are bad. It's not just well the script wasn't where it needed to be or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's really uh, yeah. It's and the just, ending is just an exact duplicate of the of the original. I mean, other than it just being mini discs or whatever yeah. instead of a cassette tape. I mean, I just I don't understand you know what his intent was with make like making Escape from L.A. the way he I've did. heard that it was quote unquote satirical or whatever like it was what it was trying to do was it was it was trying to do like phil uh when we were off the air earlier was talking about how human centipede 2 is sort of commenting on the how people view the first human centipede um and (laughs) interesting i've I've heard people try to claim that uh, escape from la is what people thought uh you know of escape from new york or whatever but I don't really, really buy it. No, I, d- I, d- I, I don't buy I don't that he would that make a, purposely make a bad movie. Although I had, a, I had a memorable viewing experience with Escape from L.A., seeing it at a drive-in stoned yeah. while watching a very Brady sequel after this one. <laughs> That's probably so, the best way to do Escape from L.A. Absolutely. I had, I had, a, I had a good time at, at the drive-in with that one, but yeah. Yeah. over time... Uh, anyway, let's get, let's get back to Escape from New Please. York. Um, I understand... I guess... It is slower because it's less about spectacle and about crazy, you know, set pieces than it is about sort of this character being forced, you know, into this place and being in between a rock and a hard place, and then that hard place just keeps getting harder and mm-hmm. uh, um, I, I, getting I, more obstacles thrown at you is something I like. Yeah, where it's uh, where it's all right. You have he has this radar. No, he doesn't have the radar. <laughs> he has no way of finding the president that way. Or, and you know, and then it's and then it's like, well, at least he has the radio. He can you know update the people. No, the radio breaks when he's running away from the obvious sort of uh, Indians, you know, stand-ins. Because they're I like I do like how the, like the weird creeps that come out of the sewers are very obviously supposed to be like Apaches from a western or something. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then yeah, and it just keeps getting harder and harder for him. But same with Assault on Precinct Thirteen I, in that way. Like I can't think things. of any my I guess a big problem I have with it is I can't think of any reason that it has to be a whole twenty like a whole I think it was exactly like seventeen minutes or something before they have the scene where they're briefing Snake. Uh, I he just sat down in front of Lee Van Cleef and it's eighteen minutes. Yeah, <laughs> like that just yep. that, that's that's crazy to me that uh, <laughs> and I and I feel like there could have been more in the world. I mean I, I mean I guess I guess not just because of budgetary well, reasons or whatever but in that way uh i don't know the the pacing's very strange and i mean that's obviously it's something you have to sort of allow yourself to get into but i still feel even now appreciating more the sort of slower um pace that that whole first 18 minutes is just takes forever yeah, yeah. well i mean Pat- he's good Patrick, like have you ever been to a drive-in i have not actually yeah the attention span is different at a drive-in and i feel like a lot of these movies are engineered for drive-in oh really how is that because we'll take 18 minutes to get to the plot because everybody's pissing and buying popcorn and walking around and and if it's the second film on on the double bill it might take some people you know a while to get squared away there was never any um there was no real mass conduit for word of mouth in the first place so it'll play all summer at the drive-in and it's it's going to play well at the drive-in if it didn't uh, move so quickly that you missed something while you were wandering around in the giant dirt lot of the drive-in. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's I, I interesting. Mean, just coming up from the – I mean like I'd say from 73 to 84 maybe. Every movie I saw was at the drive-in probably. Wow. 
Okay. And hmm. and, the, and the the not everybody's focus was on the screen. It, it's a weird. I'm not justifying it, but it's it was the demand of the time that you kind of didn't uh, hurry anything past your audience that might not be looking at the screen at that moment. Yeah. No. No. So that- I think Escape from New York sets up its premise like three fucking times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think that that's not a mistake or an, on accident. I think that's a savvy B movie producer saying you need to set this up three times so that your driving audience knows what's going on. I'd, yeah, I'd never heard that. That, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I, it wouldn't. I'd say the majority of his movies sort of have a slow buildup. Mm-hmm. I mean, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, I think, does. I was joking with Patrick the other day. The, the the credit sequence of Escape from New York, which is just text on black, <laughs> goes on for about four minutes. Yeah, I try doing that to an audience right now. Yeah, I dare you. I mean, like there. I think that that's that's letting people know that the second movie's starting. You can go back and sit down now. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. You know, mm-hmm. All just of, a thought. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and um, and then I mean later on, Prince of Darkness has the same thing, but it sets oh, up yeah. the whole story in between those titles. You know, and uh, I, I I guess you know that would be a little that would be post drive-in <laughs> or. Well, but, sure, because at that point, MTV had started. MTV started to affect the way everybody edited everything, mm-hmm. and and it started to affect how people thought uh, the viewers' attention spans worked. So things started to move a little more quickly very soon after MTV debuted. But but you're looking at Escape from New York, which probably came out maybe the same month that MTV did. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. You know, but that same year anyway. Yeah, I think I first saw this movie in 1985, and. Uh... I, I yeah I was I remember being really um, restless for the for 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 a good sure. portion of it. I mean, as a as a kid, I was like, you know, I was obsessed with Back to the Future and The Goonies and you know all these other escapist movies that sort of moved a lot quicker than this movie. And at the time, uh, <laughs> I um, yeah I was I was sort of taken. I was like expecting well. Is is Kurt Russell just going to turn into Sylvester Stallone at any point here? And I, but now I I appreciate the slow build. I appreciate the subtlety a lot more. And maybe watching it now, it's like, well, it's Carpenter. I kind of know what to expect with with his structure and his love of form and and how you know. Let's let's t- let the story sort of build on its own. And um, having watched this, you know, after Assault on Precinct Thirteen, I sort of uh, you know was more aware of kind of what his preferences are and like you know having him trapped in certain situations and having the obstacles mount over time and like all that is like one of some of the elements i love in both walter hill's movies and john carpenter's movies is just you know a group of people getting stuck in some circumstances and how they're going to work their way out of these circumstances and you know throwing in the rescue element of this too was was um was nice (laughs) To, sure. to revisit and Donald Pleasance is, uh, has returned we haven't mentioned why, him <laughs> why do we have a British president yeah good good question according, according to IMDB trivia Donald Pleasance at one point came up with a backstory that would explain why and John uh-huh. Carpenter said nah forget it <laughs> so yes I, I think I do think it, it was it's just another example of I John mean, Carpenter's really laid back on the set from what I from what I hear um, in terms of like ah just go go act yeah. Or go do your thing. I mean, don't think that about... was that was yeah. That was one of my that was one of my favorite quotes from, uh, um, what from the uh, Halloween the Inside Story where it was like, 
Deep inside Halloween. Yeah, deep in that was one of my favorite things from uh, Halloween uh, colon Deep Throat, um, where the guy, the <laughs> nice. actor, was talking, asking him about his motivation. And he goes, "Your motivation is to walk from that point to that point." <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, for those keeping score at home, Escape from New York came out 21 days before MTV launched. Just so you know. know. It's the end. It it's, and that's what the movie's about. It's about the end of an era, I guess. I don't know. The uh, end of an era. Yeah. I was confused by this movie when it said 1997 is now. I'm like, what? <laughs> now. That's, no. That's not right. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's a really thin premise, like a lot of Westerns sure. were. That hangs on the shoulders of a of a of a character that you just don't want to stop watching. Yeah, and, Kurt, Kurt Russell you know, makes this completely compelling throughout. That's probably why I still put in Escape from L.A. every other year. I Escape just from New see, York, right? Nope, nope. I'll put in Escape from New York a couple times a year, but okay. every once in a while, <laughs> I'll put in Escape from L.A. just because I want to see Snake Plissken. And right. you know, I, okay. Been a little, it's been a little, you know, soon since I've watched Escape from New York, and I'll just see Escape from LA, just see if it's as bad as I remember. It always is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that the uh, uh, the co-writer for Escape from New York was the Shape himself, yes, Mr. Nick Castle, who went on a couple years later to make one of my all-time favorite movies, Last Starfighter. Is that one of your all-time favorite movies? Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I'm I'm a freak. I'm like obsessed with that movie. I even met uh, the. Uh, I met Catherine Mary Stewart recently and just gushed about how much I love that movie. Uh, and it's... How'd that go? It went very well. I mean, yeah. she's really sweet. I mean, this was at a horror film convention where everybody was, like, sort of focusing on Night of the Comet. Uh, but, mm. but um, no, I mean, it, it, like... I, but I, Last Starfighter has its fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't stop talking to Nick Castle about uh, how much I loved Major Pain. Oh. That's a good one. That's a, Mr. Wrong. That's a, that's really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, he, he and he made Dennis the Menace. Made, ma- major, made Let me look that up. Major, major Pain is a, is a great, uh, like Escape from L.A., is a great movie that plays on TNT at all times. Mm. Uh, here's, here's the thing. You have, for Escape from L.A., you had the same star, the same director, the same producer. The only one missing from the equation was Nick Castle. I think that there's uh, a connection. Uh, hmm. I think they should have paid him whatever he was asking. And had him help out with Escape from L.A. and and talk uh, John Carpenter out of that dopey Western music that they used in the yeah. film, and at, and out of the the CGI shark that put, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tries to bite the submarine for no reason. That was a, that was a drag. No, but and then I and then of, of course uh, I really liked the individual uh, scenes in uh, Escape from New York. Like I love how every time we cut back to the president. Uh, he's just being mocked more and more. Like he's, <laughs> he's got a wig. Like on he's at one tied. Point. Yeah, he's tied up, and then next time he's just getting shot at, and he has to, you know, he has to proclaim his love for Duke. And then the next time he has a fucking wig, and he's just. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I love. I think he should have been in a, in like a corset and shit at the end. Yeah. I think it should have been more implicit you know, that he was just, you know, someone's fuck doll in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that would that would make the that would make his revenge Ooh. so sweet. I love I love it when that would make it a, uh, I love it when the president gets his. Revenge. That would make it an I spit on your grave almost kind of moment. He could absolutely pull, yeah. If, him, him am I swearing too much? No, no. This is, is a, that okay. No, that's that's what we do. It's yeah. The Fuck. podcast is marked explicit, so we can swear as much as we want. Fucking a. Fuck yeah. yeah. And you know it's yeah. I, I love it when when Pleasance has his revenge and has his freak out while he's shooting the gun. <laughs> I love the Duke. You're the Duke. Why didn't anyone take the president away? (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, like uh, <clears throat> I like how Irwin Yablons in Halloween talked about how there was an unhinged quality of Donald Pleasance that was important for Loomis. And no one ever really factors that into him playing the president of the United States in Escape from New York, except at the end he's just unloading his gun on them. Like, yeah, the dude! <laughs> and he's, he's just completely off his rocker at the end. And the next thing you know, he's getting shaved. He's, yeah. getting, he's, he's sitting in his chair having a nice shave. He's really he's really fun uh, in that film. doesn't get doesn't get enough credit. I don't think that's true. Right. Uh, and I mean, I, of course, just the fact that it's a British president really is a fun. <laughs> funny. Mm-hmm. And I think the burning question we all have about this movie is, where does that snake tattoo end? Yeah. Oh jeez. Mm. Is that the? I've never. I've literally never <laughs> thought about that before. <laughs> that makes your, yeah. Shit. Neither did I, I. But that yeah. I guess you know. I guess thing. you know where my mind is. Yeah. Yeah. In, in his. Pants, yeah. Apparently, his camouflage stretch pants. Yeah, Kurt, young Kurt Russell can't beat him. Reef. Yeah. What a great note to end this on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, are there any other? Uh, well, let's hope Carpenter the remake never happens. Let's talk hope, about. Yeah, I was just going to say, let's hope the remake of Escape from New York never happens because they want to cast Gerard Butler. We don't want this to ever happen. I think that 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 part's dead and gone by now. Good. But uh, when when I got to speak with Carpenter, he he volunteered that there's one remake of his films that he really liked. Can you guys figure out what it is? Um, hmm. Hold on. Not the fog. Is it the fog? Uh, no, and it's not any kind of trick question. It's not like the one that paid him the most or anything like that either. Right. Um, uh, hmm. Yeah, I don't know what. Uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Really? Oh, that's right. Yeah. He really, he really enjoyed that remake. He said. I need to see that. Um, yeah, the remake. No, I haven't. I've heard pretty good things. Like mm. not great, but um, I'm curious just because. Um, if we're going to talk about another Carpenter movie, I really would like to talk about Assault on Precinct 13. Because mm-hmm. sure. I, I think that's a phenomenal piece of work in every way. Like, it's obviously, it's, you know, his uh, homage to Rio Bravo once again. Um, I mean, my favorite moment is probably a direct lift from Rio Bravo where he sh- throws him the gun just in time as to shoot somebody in the, in right. the doorway. Like, that is just such a badass moment. Like, I love those you know sort of cathartic moments and like just the way the the uh the the, the bullets are whizzing by you know and and and, and you know shooting at the, at the at the building and through the silencers and that sort of stylistic touch is really cool um mm-hmm. yeah i mean i just i just like i said earlier the that that whole premise of people being trapped and uh figuring out how they're going to get out of it is one of my favorite setups for any movie but um, this still like to this day still seeing that that scene with the ice cream truck is really fucking shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it really is to me to like like wow he got away with that shit. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> you you watch Bravo at all? No, <laughs> well, not, not lately. No. Yeah, well, the little girl gets shot in the ice cream truck is is one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Really? Whoa. And her sister is the little girl from Halloween, and she's on the show as well. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was I was on the first episode of that show. I was interviewing her for my show, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it turns out that they're like sisters and they hate each other. It's a whole thing. But uh, hmm. yeah, the girl the girl takes the soft serve girl that takes the bullet in Assault on Precinct Thirteen is Kim Richards, and she's uh, one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Mm. Good stuff. I think I, uh, he made he made that movie for seventy grand. That's yeah. that's kind of what I've, why I avoided the remake because I think one of the things I like about it is how incredibly stripped down it is. Where yeah. even like individual scenes, you feel like, you know, just off camera, it, it, 
the, the set ends and that like sure it, it's it feels very cheap and then of course and then so it just it feels so sparse and then when the you know when they get trapped in the police station you can't even see you know where the people are where they're right. coming from it's again it's that presence outside you don't know where it's coming from that's the most threatening and that was and that was the movie because i remember i used to hate john carpenter's really electronic scores and that was the movie where i learned to appreciate them yeah it's very rhythmic it complements everything i think like i mean a lot of people sort of harp on you know something like they live where it's just like just sort of the repetitiveness of it beginning of his like of the music that eventually became the music in escape from la yeah with the harmonica and the yeah okay you know i could see that now but like that that original is on uh netflix streaming if anybody's listening and wants to check that out they should watch that what uh assault on precinct 13 oh great the the original right right Mm -hmm. yeah no, I just like the. He's very economical with with uh, where he puts a camera. Like just the setups, then the graceful movements are all here again. Um, and, and it's just like the development of the narrative as it you know as as like more obstacles are thrown their way and and watching you know them having to rely on a criminal once again. Um, and a, and a very cool like I can't remember the actor's name, but a very cool John Wayne again sort of homage to that that character and like having him always ask for a cigarette or whatever like just that repetitiveness of the line um which is actually which is yeah which is actually thrown in escape from new york too and escape from la in a more goofy way um but yeah no i i a solemn precinct 13 is as good as like a tight action thriller it can get for me yeah yeah very stripped down very uh very lean mean and uh it, it, it obviously was his little flare gun. He, he, he made that film and, and got the attention of some folks, and that's how Halloween came about. And you know, they saw they saw his uh, his work in that one, and that that got Yablons Yablons' uh, attention. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys see the new one? Did you see the Ward? Anybody? I didn't see it yet. I did see the Ward. <laughs> um, they're they're I, like. The, it's definitely directed. Old, is there any old carpenter left? There is a lot of the, a lot of the shots down long hallways are very carpenter esque, and again, he's shooting in scope like he always does. And you know, there's a lot of cool you know imagery throughout. Um, it relies too much on jump scares, and mm-hmm. the last act damn near destroyed the rest of the movie for me because of where it decides to go, and it's it's annoying at this point in time and. I've brought up earlier in the show about how there's a trope in horror movies now that I can't get behind anymore, even if the rest of the movie is somewhat, you know, um, tolerable. I mean, a lot of it, I, the acting isn't as strong. I, Amber Heard is the lead, and she's not very good. Um, and she looks fine. <laughs> um, let's, be, let's be honest. I mean, it, I, I was, I don't know. I mean, I, if I'm going to go for, you know, for a crazier Carpenter horror film, I'm going to opt for In the Mouth of Madness, which I think is a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's profound. I think it's just goofy and crazy and, and, you know, kind of a mess, but a really compelling, interesting, creepy mess for me. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy In the Mouth of Madness quite a bit. Whereas The Ward... Not nothing spectacular. Nothing stands out from it. It's a very mediocre carpenter work. Not as bad as Ghosts of Mars. 
which is my probably my least favorite Carpenter movie. Which is essentially Assault on Precinct 13 on, on Mars. Yep. Right. And so it, you, didn't, you didn't enjoy that one? I didn't enjoy that one at all. Um, aside from, you know, a pretty decent cast, I it seemed like that was, you know, car- like especially that the villain in that looking like Marilyn Manson and just, you know, chanting to the air and like chanting nonsense. Like I remember laughing a lot at that movie, whether it was intended or not. To me, it, it, he he felt very tired at that point in time. Like he just didn't give a fuck. And you know, maybe that's not true at all. But I read somewhere it might have been like through the Onion with a, through an interview that. It was when he was editing Ghosts of Mars that he decided that he wanted to stop. Yeah. He, mm. That he wanted to completely quit or at least take a long break, which he did. Um, yeah. It's too bad that he didn't come back with something really spectacular because the ward isn't. It's not horrible, but for me, at least the last, the, where the movie decides to go kind of uh, upset me because I'm just like, oh, God, are you kidding? Come on. I don't know. Hmm. Just story-wise, screenplay-wise, I think it was more upsetting um, than anything else. But I do want to. I do want to talk real quick about a TV movie he did right after. Yeah. A Halloween called Somebody. So, I, someone's watching me, or somebody's I watching me. I always feel like somebody's um, watching me. It's actually uh, for a TV, you know, TV horror movie. It's surprisingly good. Uh, yeah, the setup is great. It 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 is. It's very. It's kind of very much like a. You know, a, a body double De Palma kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Where this woman is Patrick, being. Patrick, let me stop you for a sec. He he wrote that, right? He didn't direct that. No, he directed it. Did uh, he? Yeah, he yeah. Directed it, and he yes, he also wrote it. Someone's watching me. Uh oh. Okay. Also known as High Rise. Yeah, and I, I think it got I think it got released theatrically in some other countries, but not in America. Hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, and it's and the first two acts are like actually very good at establishing tension. It's the same sort of Halloween trick. I mean, it's certainly not as inspired uh, as Halloween, but it's the same sort of trick where uh, she lives in an apartment with huge windows, and every shot is dominated by the windows, and you see across the street to the other apartment where we already know the person is watching her, even though she doesn't know. Um, right. It opens with a really great stylistic pullback shot of a te- of the most phallic telescope that's ever existed. Uh, that's that's one of that's it's a very De Palma De Palma kind of a moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's obviously more restrained, restrained, but it's yeah, it's it's just another exercise in style. Uh, the third act is when they they start like trying to uncover the mystery of who he is, and yeah. then, then it it's not scary or even interesting at all. Yeah, the final confrontation is kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but it of course uh, but it was, ends very similarly to Halloween. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I know, but I was very shocked at how at, at how well done it was, and I guess the other, the other thing I say that's worth noting is that Adrian Barbeau plays a lesbian, and it's just it's just like very matter of fact, and it yeah. Uh, uh, for a movie, you know, a, a TV movie from the late seventies, that's kind uh, of. Surprising. I was hoping it was going to turn to Bound. Yeah, I know. <laughs> sadly, that's not the case. The only thing I didn't really like at all was the score. I thought it was kind of inundating at times. Um, I, 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 it's, it was very obviously. You can tell at certain points that it is a TV movie, like where certain fade outs are or whatever. Yeah, the, the, it has the it requirement has to have to have commercial breaks. Yeah, uh, really does limit how how much you can crank that tension but no but like the like things you sort of expect like in something where with like when a stranger calls with with him making creepy phone calls i thought was all very effective and by this point in time obviously we've seen that over and over and over again but 
I was still I was still genuinely freaked out by this movie. I thought it was very creepy and uh, yeah. Laura, Lauren Hutton is the lead, and I think she's she has plays kind of an interesting character who's like she's kind of off her rocker a little yeah, bit. Yeah, she's she, a little neurotic. She plays like a pathological liar, and I mean, yeah. it's a weird thing that I guess they he, they wrote just to make the character interesting because it doesn't actually factor into anything. She talks a lot to herself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like excessively, so. it's it's not a it's not a, you know it's not a great movie. I can't, but I would say like if you like John Carpenter, it's sort of I, it's something I'd never even heard of. Um, yeah, neither have I until and, you brought it up. And did just, you get the DVD? Yeah, I got it from Netflix. Yeah, how's it look? It it looks like a TV movie. It's yeah. it's fine. Uh, it's um, the wide. Uh, I can't remember. Hold on. I, I Why, would the, Why would it be? Right? Yeah, I don't think it is. Nope, I it don't is not think wide. It is, no, it's so it, it's probably is one movie that isn't wide, but. Mm. Um, no, but it, if you're interested in you know sort of older Carpenter, it's yeah, it's, I'd like to see it. I, I I feel like I've seen it on TV when I was a kid, but I got I haven't looked at it in years and years. Yeah, and it has a it has a really crazy. It feels like it was. If you, you, like, you ever see a movie that was originally shot for 3D in like the 80s or something, and all the titles sure. fly at you, that's what the title screen of this is. It's, I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> I I think he was trying to do like a like a. Um, Saul Bass or is it Saul Bass or Saul Bass? Bass. Let's say Bass. Yeah, Saul Bass sort of a psycho thing where um, everything's very stylized, but it, it's mostly just silly. But no, it's, it's, I'd say it's worth seeing. So uh, yeah, some, uh, someone's uh, someone's watching me. Mm. I am yeah. right now. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Jim. I'm watching you. <sighs> you should take off Aww. that robe. You look better without it. <laughs> That's that. That is one of the good lines in that movie. Um, also, Adrian Barbeau, in case they missed it, uh, last commercial break, constantly being like, "I'm glad you don't care that I'm a lesbian." <laughs> like, like, is isn't it, it? It almost, yeah, it almost feels like 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 John Carpenter trying to be just subversive and that he gets anything gay or whatever into a TV movie. But it's 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 very odd that it's yeah. like that uh, that she just keeps mentioning it, but it never pl- goes into anything. There's no romance between them. It's odd that there's no cleavage either. I no. was kind of disappointed. Well, you know. Mm. Hey, um, hold on one second. I'm watching Escape from New York and Snake Plissken's walking somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Yeah. Still walking. Yeah. He's still walking. Well, all right, he's not walking anymore. Sorry. All right, well, I think we, we're like ready to wrap to, things we, up. Yeah, we like to close up the episode <laughs> with us listing our top three uh, movies by the director. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, you start. Awesome. All right, number one is a movie I'm sure we'll talk about in part two of our John Carpenter episodes, but number one is The Thing, and always will be, probably. Mm-hmm. Number two is Halloween, and number three is Assault on Precinct 13. All right, and uh, Phil? I didn't know there would be rankings. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, let me think. You, you want to go, go next, and I'll yeah. think for a second. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I think, for me, number one would definitely be Halloween. Uh, number two, The Thing. And then number three, I think I'm actually going to go with Prince of Darkness. Ooh, very good. I kind of hate Prince of Darkness. I love, Interesting. I love the first two acts, and then it, it, and then the big climax is them hitting zombies with wood. And it's like... The problem is, is you know, like that, that movie... Ex- exemplifies Carpenter's problems more than any others. He's a guy who uh, has a lot of trouble. I say this as a fan. He's a guy who has a lot of trouble delivering on his premises. Yeah. And that's true in Escape from New York, and that's true to some degree in uh, a lot of his films. Christine's another one that's problematic. But uh, uh, I got a soft spot for Christine. 
I really do. Sure. It's great when those when those headlights come on and that score kicks in and oh, all that the, business. I'd say one of my favorite Carpenter moments is when the car rebuilds itself and that fucking song Harlem Nocturne is playing. And <laughs> that whole it's like sexy as fuck. <laughs> like, you know, him just saying, Yo, show me. I don't know. I, there's there's a lot of things I don't sure. like the la- I don't like the last act of that movie either, but um no, I there's a lot of things I like about Christine. Oh man, um, I think I'm probably mostly in line with what Jim was saying. I think that when the you know trying to be as objective as you can, the thing is probably his best film. Yeah, and I think that uh, Halloween is probably his next best film. And the, that third slot's just tough for me. I mean, the, sure. there's just too much affection for a lot of stuff to to kind of you know. I, I, part of me wants to say Escape from New York. Part of me wants to say. Uh, Something that's not escaped from New York. Uh, uh, let's see. Big I Trouble. Mean, yeah, you know, I mean, people like Big Trouble a lot more than I do. I yeah, I'm like. kind of, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I like it. It's, it's a goofy mashup of a movie. Um, it's not something I'm going to throw on as often as other films of his. Like, I think it's fun, but if, if Escape is a movie that coasts on a, a character's, a lead character's charisma. Then Big Trouble is really a movie that coasts on the character's charisma. Yeah, <laughs> and the weird part of that is that he's doing a Clint Eastwood impression in one and a John Wayne impression in the other. Yeah, so, no, good point. Yeah, you know that's that's kind of a weird thing. But uh, fuck, I don't know. I I think that um, you know, we didn't get into Dark Star at all. It's not one of my favorites, but I think it's a movie worth talking about if you do another thing on his. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, we definitely really will. Kind of neat, but um. Yeah, probably I'm split somewhere between Escape from New York and, and Assault on Precinct 13. That's my third favorite. All right. That's Excellent. fair. Yeah. All right. <sighs> so uh, we're ready to wrap things up officially yeah, here. Yeah, um, If you uh, want to contact us, we're directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And visit the website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Yeah. Um, Phil, do you have anything to plug? Is, uh, is the uh, inside story of um, Fatal Attraction playing again on bio anytime soon? Uh, probably yeah, I think it's running all week. I don't have the times in front of me, but yeah. if you check bio, you can either watch Fatal or uh, the Halloween one all week this week. All right, yeah. So please do. Yeah, yeah. My my girlfriend saw Fatal Attraction when she loved it. She she had no idea that De Palma was ever attached in the I and she was so excited to tell me about the the idea of the scene in the Kabuki theater. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, I I went into that documentary knowing about two things that happened. One was that they didn't want Glenn Close and that they reshot the ending. All the rest of it came out. I, I shit a brick because uh, that whole Brian De Palma story happened on the last day of interviews. Wow. And I, did, I huh. didn't know what I was going to do in terms of like trying to get somebody else to corroborate it. But luckily we booked another interview after that screenwriter and he corroborated stuff and that was cool. Uh, but – that was a fun one because I just I didn't know anything about that movie and it's uh, one of the last movies that's handmade. You know, after that you start to get stories about people standing in front of blue screens a lot yeah. in the nineties mm. and, and beyond. Uh, but, but Fatal Attraction was made by a bunch of people crammed into small spaces in New York, and it was kind of a neat story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. That's and, then, cool. uh, and then of course, if if there's ever any movie news on. Uh, James Bond or uh, Dark Shadows, be sure to check out Badass Digest, where Phil will probably be writing about it. Mm-hmm. Those are my ghettos. That's yeah. it. <laughs> are you on Twitter, Phil? Yeah, I'm in there somewhere. Uh, Phil from PHL. Cool. Yep. And I'm at Instant Gym. And I'm at Patrick Rapol. Awesome. Join us in a couple weeks. We're going to be talking about uh, another horror director, Dario Argento. Uh-huh. I believe so. we're going to be talking with Gabe Powers. 
Awesome. Um, really looking DVD forward active. to that. Yeah. He's he a, knows his Dario. Yeah. yeah he's, a, he's a filmmaker that I've only seen maybe two or three movies of his, so I'm going to try and catch up with when I can. And um, I'm very excited because I'm, I'm pretty much – I've seen like maybe three Giallo movies ever. So Yeah. Yeah, same oh, here. Nice. So that's going to be cool to that's catch up with. I'm absolutely. looking forward to rewatching Suspiria for sure. <laughs> great. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and thanks, Phil, for being on the show. It was great right having on, you thanks. Thank you. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. It sounds like fortune cookies. You said anal and rectal. <laughs> you know what a rectum is, right? <laughs> Rectal. Shoot a cock with a gun. The big-